Broadcasting live from sunny South Florida, this is KMA Talk Radio. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of fine cigars. Your KMA crew, the Italian scallion, Paul DeGracco, Alex Tavella, a.k.a. The Goat, and always telling it like it is, Honest Abe. I like to smoke them like the Winston Churchill. Good morning, KMA Talk. There he is. I forget. I forgot it was off. Good morning to all our lawyer listeners, libertarians, and lovers of the leaf. I'm your host of this morning's episode of KMA Talk Radio, broadcasted live from sunny South Florida. Here with my cohorts, as always, the Italian scallion himself, Paul DeGracco, and the man, none other than the one they call the goat, Alex Tavella. Good morning. Good morning. Well, this is now becoming a weekly thing now where you have to now describe what is your setting behind you. So today, we are at the world-famous Geno Steaks. Oh, Steak Geno Steaks. There you in go. In the heart of South Philadelphia. Which oh, is I have been there, actually. That's that one of the places I've been. Is that what you claim to be the best uh, Philly cheesesteak in Philly? Uh, well, no. And most people would say no. Geno's is probably the most famous cheesesteak place in Philly. Also happens to be like literally two blocks from the house I grew up in. And what you don't see in this picture, though, there's actually right across the street is Pat's Steaks, the other uh, famous cheesesteak place in Philly. And there's been an ongoing, like, I don't know, 100-year rivalry be between the two. Um, one of the unwritten rules is if you're a tourist and you plan on trying both, don't plan on trying both in the same spot. You're not going to be very welcomed if you bring a Pat's steak over to a Gino's table or a Gino's steak over to a Pat's table. <laughs> so, so which, which is your choice of preference? Neither. All right. Well, okay. Neither. So let, me, let me rephrase that. Which of those two do you like better? Which of, um, you know, there's not really a like better to me. I mean, cheesesteak isn't really fine cuisine. All right, if you had to They're get basically one. basically the same. If you I had, had to choose, money, I you usually... have money to buy one cheesesteak. So, no, my answer is I would normally go to Pat's because more of my friends worked at Pat's than Gino's. If that's so you get a free cheesesteak. No, not even. You know, free nothing. There's free nothing. But, you know, your friends, uh, you bust a line, they take care of you. You know, you move along a little quicker. All right, what's your favorite cheesesteak in Philly? Um, my favorite this at some point, but my favorite cheesesteak is also my favorite roast pork at where the place I had, I think it was last week, John's roast pork. Uh, that's it's right. also a great cheesesteak. Oh yeah. You did mention that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a cheesesteak guy though. I'm a roast pork I am, guy. I am late long, at night. Broccoli after, after a long night, I like a cheesesteak if I'm, if I'm in an area that'll have good ones. I'm gonna tell you, and I know I'm, I know this is gonna be extremely sacrilegious. I'm probably yeah. gonna get I'm gonna yell, yelled at from a lot of people, but I'm probably gonna agree with you again. Yeah, the the best cheesesteak that I've ever enjoyed is actually at Cafe Monteranos. 
All right, well, I wasn't going to agree with you there. But, yes, the best cheesesteak in Florida, without a doubt, is from Cafe Mortarano's, which Stevie Mortarano is a Philly guy, so it makes sense. But uh, to answer some questions I just from like our the way he serves it. I like the toasted, crunchy bread. Right, I, like, right. it just, that, I mean, I, I enjoy that one more than I enjoy any one I had in Philly. I am a provolone guy, by the way. I am not a cheese whiz guy. I'm not a fan of whiz. Never got, never understood the whole whiz thing. I was actually shocked when the first time I saw one with whiz on it. I'm like, what? Whiz is the, but now I'm a provolone guy. Whiz is messy. It's weird. It's I don't like whiz. I never did. Whiz is only good on like a like a cracker, or like French fries. I'd rather have whiz on French fries than a steak. I just don't think whiz goes good on anything. Yeah, I'm not a whiz guy. It's just a weird substance. Back Prolong. in, back in high school and college, you used to eat it out of the can. It's so gross. Cheese Whiz is right up there with McDonald pickles. So proper ordering technique at Gino's or Pat's for myself would be provolone wit. Could you? Would you go for mozzarella on there, or no? No, no. I like fresh, fresh mozzarella or just. Normal I'll just mozzarella. put mozzarella on on a cheesesteak. I like that. It's doable. Now, see, there's a little trick in Philly. If you go to some of the offshoot places, especially the pizza places that make cheesesteaks, get yourself a pizza steak. A cheesesteak with, with, with the pizza sauce and the mozzarella cheese on top instead of that ketchup or good. a pizza steak. Oh, see, I didn't even pizza know Pizza steak that is one. good. That's the offshoot. You're not getting a pizza steak at Gino's. Don't even ask. <laughs> <laughs> Would they kick you out? Uh, they look at you crazy. Proper ordering is is... It's two words: the cheese and wit or without onions. Whiz wit, provolone wit. That's it. That's it. Whiz without, provolone without. That's it. It's the only way you order. Two words, okay. boom, you're on your way. And if you don't order correctly, do they kick you out? No, but they just know that you're not a local. I, I, I was going to say, I just got. I, I just would like to videotape the scenes of the locals behind tourists in line. Um, can I get the the one without mushrooms? Right. What is cheese whiz? Do you have wheat bread? You know yes. that kind of shit. Is your bread gluten free? Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I could just see the the facial. Is your bread gluten free? I can see. The, <laughs> I can see the facial expressions. Paul, are we at home still? I yeah. I mean, what do you mean? Oh, did I, I don't know. You're yet? moving. You're not moving. You're packing. You're Vero. What you're is home? Vero. Are you homeless yet? I think. Yeah. I mean. Place. You, the state of the affairs of the DeGracco household is in constant flux. I will be uh, officially homeless on uh, September 3rd, uh, although we're moving all of our furniture before that. We're moving everything out on September, on August 30th, the Monday after our uh, 10th anniversary. And where's where's that furniture going? <sighs> Storage, which, by the way, everybody talks about the real estate market and how things are crazy overpriced. Try finding a storage unit. One, try finding one. Hey, well, we keep in mind, up. we had five. We just we gave up five. five. Oh, you should have told me. I would have taken them. If they're five. so hard to find, like 10 by, like big ones, like 10 by oh, 20s yeah. or 10 by 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's been difficult. We found one here in Wellington. Um, but, uh, man, the price, it's almost as much as I'm paying for rent at the uh, at the in-between apartment before the house is done being built. That's how expensive it is. I'm telling you, what we saved in our monthly storage with just the dry storage in the warehouse, I think covers almost half the rent or close it's to it. It's unbelievable. I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I, I rented a storage unit maybe 10 years ago for my brother. He had a fire at his place. My dad and I went and rented uh, his, um, rented a storage unit for him. 
I think it was like, you know, it was the same the, the type of deal where it's a dollar for the first month and then a hundred bucks. And it was a big ass one. It fit his whole house in there. Not air conditioned. Yeah, it was climate controlled for a really? hundred bucks a month. But that was yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Climate control now, there were some places around here that, that want a thousand dollars a month or more. So yeah. Yeah, the moving the moving company said, yeah, we'll store it for you at our facility. Perfect. Yeah, you have this much stuff. Perfect. They came and did a quote. They said, listen, we'll give you a deal. Twenty two hundred a month to store all your stuff. I'm like, a thousand bucks a month. Crazy. Could you imagine? I'm surprised there aren't people living in storage units, considering how much it costs to to buy a one bedroom apartment. In I think if they could, they would. Some people do. If you if you listen to the Stern Show, Richard Christie from the the Howard Stern Show, one of the producers, he lived in a storage unit for a year when he first moved to New York, and they would catch him sometimes, and, and he'd get kicked out. The security guard would find him, and he had to run like an elect like a an extension cord from the hallway to find an outlet or something. Yeah, I mean, you'd really have to be a, a silent sleeper for that because, like, I snore. You could hear me like four or five bays over. I would, <laughs> the echo. I would never get away with sleeping in a storage bay ever. I thought about it. Listen, if it was just Stephanie and I, we would we could care less where we stay. But you know, we, with the kids now, you're like you know, you're responsible for bringing your. If I put my kids in some kind of like destitute, impoverished like uh, storage unit, I might get in trouble. I so got, I got, I got, I got news for you. Steph is never living in a storage bay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, Ever. Listen, Ever. you say that. You Ever. say that. But you should Ever. have seen the place she wanted us to go to temporarily. I'll show you guys. I'll tell you guys where it is when we're off the air. Was and it, you're going to be like, no way I would have my children be there. Was it nice? not nice enough for the aristocrat in you? The house itself was nice. It's just like 15 steps outside of the house is like, you know, the possibly the worst area within a 30 mile radius of us. That must, that so, must, that must mean there's got to be like a Circle K or a neighborhood store that like turned Paul off. That, yeah. I don't mind that. It's just like a, a lot store. of people. A lot yeah. of people is at like a, nine o'clock at night. Corner store? <laughs> There's a corner store here. Oh my god, <laughs> dude! I used to live around the block from a Seven Eleven on Long Island. I don't mind. Oh that. God forbid. Oh God forbid. What? How demeaning. <laughs> Paul. Oh my gosh. So that's what's going on here. It's it's uh it's craziness, but we're we're in a good spot, so we're comfortable as long we finally got the storage unit. That was the for a week I was trying to find a store storage units, either multiple ones that would be big enough or one whew, man, it is and we live right by like an area where there's a ton of storage units here, you know, down our the main highway. And they you call calling these places, there's nothing. There's nothing. Oh, sure, you want a five by ten? Like sure, I think my bed will fit in a five by ten. <laughs> Man, emptying our storage bays was like a fulfilling experience. It's cathartic, right? Oh God, it was cathartic, man. Just getting all that crap out of there, stuff that probably we haven't even known we had for years. I say it's also a trip down memory lane. It's that part of it too. That part of it too. But Allison, we... it's hard to downsize when you have two young kids growing up. Like we have more stuff just because. Come on, older. dude. We were living in a little two bedroom townhouse when we had three kids. Yeah, but it was probably bigger square footage than this. I'm living no, in 1350 no, square feet. No, we had two bedroom townhouse when we had three kids. Get out of here. <laughs> Paul, Paul, I, we were talking last night on the car ride home. Paul in my life has become that guy. <laughs> that woe is me guy. 
Like you everything... called me right after I got bad news, and Bro, I was like, oh, I "That's not bad. even bad news. That's just like a sad story somewhere you read about." Well, that's what I meant. It's sad story. Oh, so get out of here! Just... Paul has become that guy in my life. I haven't had one in a while, but he's that guy. Like everything in the universe is like tragic and like a problem and woe is me. Every conversation you so depressing to talk to sometimes. Once I listen, once we get this whole move over with, I'll be fine. Like it's just it's so you I, I was reading something online about the, the most stressful times of your life, which seem like they should be the happiest times of your life. It's when you get weddings. married. Yeah, weddings. When you have your Babies. first child. Yeah. And when you and when you move. Those are like the the turning point. And I'll be honest, yeah. having a child the first time, I don't I mean, I was a little nervous, but it wasn't that bad. I mean you took a class. I didn't take the class. The class didn't happen. But you, you took a class. class. Yeah, you took a class, dude. Paul is a country song. <laughs> Paul <laughs> is a country song. My it, it, wife doesn't like me. Oh, my gosh. His boss, his job, his house, his girl, his kid. I mean, it's, like, <laughs> it's a never-ending, like, depression so things, story. Things are good today. The kids are out for the day. We're going out to dinner. It's going to be the first time I eat real food in three weeks since I've been on this disgusting diet. What diet? Yeah. I didn't know you were we, on a diet. Yeah, we do. <sighs> Is that why you didn't come and get White Castle sliders? Yeah. Which, by the way, which, by the way, there's a whole case we're bringing over. We put them in the cooler. We got a whole case. We got 100 slider burgers. It's coming out on the table today. So if you're anywhere near Boynton Beach, want to have some White Castle. We got the microwave still out. Come on down, man. We, we, we want to give this food away before we got to throw it out. Wow, that sounds good. Listen, uh, we're on some kind of diet that we've done that we did before the wedding. Um, but I, in all seriousness, in two months on Long Island, I think I gained 25 pounds. Like, which, look, I mean, which for a short guy like, like you, that's like 50 for a normal person. It, it really <laughs> is, though. I'm five seven. <laughs> so I've lost 15 pounds so far uh in three weeks which is what's the diet it's the same diet i did last time it's called a five in one diet so you have what is so you have five wasn't, products wasn't that, that you a drugstore what's five that okay it's it's optavia so you get five either bars or whatever they they make these pre-processed disgusting foods that you can eat throughout the day they're all like 80 calories each so you eat five of those throughout the day spread out two to three hours apart and then you have one lean and green meal. So you have like six ounces of chicken and three cups of vegetables or five ounces of steak and three and a half cups of vegetables, uh, seven ounces of fish and three and a half cups and of you, vegetables. And you pay for and this program? Set. What's that? And you pay for this program? We pay for the food, not for the program. But we do have a coach as well. Oh, you got a coach. You have a coach. Yeah. Oh, do tell us how it is. Yeah, tell us Charlie. how it is. Turn your, in your hard life and, and rough times. <laughs> you know, tell, us about, a, tell us about your dietitian. He's, he's basically my sales coach. rep. I mean, like, you know, we should have texted you like, hey, if we have cauliflower pizza crust, is that cool to have? And he send me the label. And he, we'd shoot him, we shoot him the label. He looks at it and goes, oh that's good God. to go. Oh, my God. Did you, see that? Did you see that cup? Which one? Yeah, this, this cup has been here since. Oh, boy. You know, I broke my KMA cup, so I have a new water bottle. Dude, I want that cup so bad. I've been sucking up to Saka for so long, I still can't get one. We have some. Do you really? I had no idea. I thought you gave them away. We did, and we have some. We have some. Oh. You know, 
the other thing here, is I found here at Smoking, we always have some backups. Yeah, I was literally messaging with one of our regulars the other day. He's like, "Oh, I missed it." Blah blah blah. It's sold out. Blah blah blah. I said, "You know, it's people like you. Why I can't just operate a business like a normal person? All my, <laughs> put all my inventory up online and just let it sell out." Because then I'll get these PMs from friends and regular. Oh, I'm a, all right. I got a box for you. you yeah, know, there's you always can, some. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, there's always some, maybe, you know. But yeah, we can't operate like a normal company and just say, hey, we have 150 boxes. We're going to put them up online. And when they're gone, they're gone. Oh, let's see here. Hey, Paul. Yeah, Marshall's having a rough time with his surgery, man. We wish you. I've seen him very active. Yeah. At least he's trying to stay social on Facebook. No, he's still staying social, but he's had a couple surgeries now, and it just doesn't seem to be going his way. Yeah, it's been rough for him. Well, we wish you the best, Marshall. He's a good guy. I always, I always enjoy his comments on the on the uh, smoking social, and on KMA. So, uh, anyway, so that's what's going on here. I, enough, enough about me. Coop is gone. Not going to be on today. Sorry. No, no did you see his post yesterday? He filled a fulfilled a bucket list item. Was that to share in a bridge? Yeah, to smoke on the bridge. Yeah, the I bridge. saw that. Got to be the Gold, absolute Golden worst Gate. place to smoke Golden a cigar, Gate. by the way. Golden the worst Gate. place to smoke a cigar is on a on a bridge. But he's he did go to, windy. He did go to the Buena Vista Cafe. So now when he comes here, I could let him compare because Ooh. that's where that's where we basically like I visited and was so enthralled and blown away by their Irish coffees that basically I researched it, modeled it, and actually even gave the Buena Vista Cafe a prop by placking our stores with it's the, really uh, cool actually the, the history the, the history of where the first Irish coffee was made and sold in the United States and where it became a national institution so I mean it took us three and a half I think four weeks just to get the same cups that they have you know, it, but, it, listen I had the last time last time I was there but when I first came back from New York and I went there that's what I had I had an Irish coffee and it was it's awesome. It really is very well done. It's probably become like one of the most popular drinks here at headquarters in Boynton Beach. I'm not Over sure. Over the Big Delicious Bloody Mary? Yeah, we stopped doing yeah. the Big Delicious. It, 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 the only reason why, because after COVID and whatever, it, it, it just, it's just all too much stuff. stuff. Yeah, all the stuff it was just spoiling faster than it was going. So that had to. Let me ask you a quick question. A sad and tragic end. Do you still have any of the deviled eggs left? Or the, uh, I'm sorry, the pickled eggs left? Probably. Probably. It's probably, probably jars of them. Dude, the one I, good thing about pickled eggs, they're never going to go bad. Yeah, dude, I, I love them. All right, you're going to find a whole case on your doorstep. Oh, my wife will kill you. She thinks they're the most disgusting thing in the they world. They are. In fact, when I get the big, when I used to get it, I used to say, keep, don't cut the egg. I don't want the egg. Oh, the egg's good. Those, are, ha those are jalapeno pickled eggs. Yeah. Ugh. Whatever, those are delicious. They're like yellowish green. Well, they're yellow. I, I I literally picked that product for the color because it just added a cool color to the glass. You know, a, a, you know. A, a, Why'd you a, just put a lemon on it? Because it was an egg. Yeah, because it was an edible item. It was a pickled egg, which I thought was you know an interesting item to find and put on. Because when we were concocting that drink, I had to try to find elements that would last. Right. Right. You know, and things that we could need to to cook. Right. You know, so it was. That was the research in putting that cocktail well, together. The beef stick was so good. The piece Look at Paul. Good. Paul's reminiscing about the drink. Dude, I'm just reminiscing about any kind of food. I love Bloody Marys, but I, just food in general sounds delicious right speaking now. Of which, <laughs> Bloody, speaking of Bloody Marys, let's remind all our listeners, um, next week, it, it is next week, right? Yeah. Yes. Is our 10th 
anniversary episode. This is our 10th year of KMA oh. Talk Radio. We will be broadcasting live from the J.C. Newman factory in Tampa. They are selling, now J.C. Newman are selling tickets. I don't know if they're sold out. I don't know. I think there was only about 50 or 60 seats available. Um, but they're doing a nice to-do. There's going to be a little cocktail hour before the show. I think they're doing like mimosas and Bloody Marys. Uh, they'll have maybe a little breakfast food or snacks. Then you get to watch the 10th anniversary show live, uh, which if we pull off, technically it'll be a miracle at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, there'll be a little social gathering where they're going to have some, I think, sandwiches and stuff, and we're going to hang out for a while. And uh, I think we have a 10th anniversary cake we're going to bring out and slice up. And uh, it, it's, it's it, and it, it comes with cigars. They're making a cigar package. So the tickets are available. There's a post on our KMA Facebook page that takes you to an Eventbrite page where you can buy tickets if you're going to be in the Tampa area next Saturday or if you already live there and want to watch a show live. Come and join us. Spend the Saturday morning with us next week in Tampa. We will be there. Um, and just uh, wanted to remind our listeners about that. So that should be very, very, very cool. And then the next day I move. Nice. Where are you moving again? Did you finally find a place? <laughs> yeah, we have a place in in uh, in the same town. It's not, I'll I'll send you the listing. You're gonna look at it and be like, oh. Wait, wait in, in the same in the same development or just no i tried so one of my neighbors does rent there's two houses right by us that do rent but because it's going into polo season i said to them i have to be in till like the second week of november and they're like second week of november we triple our rents so there's places around here that'll charge like 2500 bucks a month for a full house as soon as november hits season they, baby season 6500 7000 season if it's you have a nice, if you have if you have a good spot in South Florida, you can make your annual mortgage in about four months, five yeah. months. But for yeah, that's for four true. months they they charge that for however long the polo season is. So that's why we considered on keeping this house for that reason because our neighbors were renting theirs for they would they would move out and rent their house for five grand for for four if, months. If you could swing it, that's what I'd do with you. I'd Airbnb it and then just rent it out in season. Yeah, well, we're not doing it now. I just I don't want the headache at this point. That's why I got rid of my older homes. Became yeah, a headache. I think it would be a good investment, but it's just we'll do it. We'll do it another day. Like it's just not time for any of that. So we're getting excited, though, man. We're getting excited. We can use the amenities at our new place. So I said to my wife, "What are they going to do if we take a couple? Like, there's windows in the place, and they have the HVAC in in our new house. What are they going to do if we just like?" You know, go in there with air mattresses and sleep on the concrete floors. What are they gonna know? They won't do nothing until you they come in and you're sleeping and they start drilling <laughs> until you get the fuck right. out. <laughs> and my kids are live in a construction zone. Right. Yeah, I'm sure DFS would be love you know, happy to hear about that. <sighs> it's crazy time. Listen, All right. uh, the other quick thing before we bring our guest on, I want to tease something because Coop's oh, I have an update nice. too. Do all the teasing. Oh, you have an update to it? Yeah. No, no, so no just do something, something else, but go ahead. Okay. We, today, we're doing a special edition of Tale of the Tape for the three of us. Paul's been uh, sweating and, and painting over this for... Yes. I'm t I, tell you, I tell you what. I was up till maybe 1 o'clock in the morning, and I still couldn't make a decision. This morning, I was figuring it out. I was talking to my wife. She said, this is disgusting. I'm going to tell Abe to not do this today because you're stressing for this. This is ridiculous. A lot so, of pressure on you, Paul. The sad yes. part is I'm 100% confident that my viewership, our viewership, will agree, agree with my with choice. 
I don't know. I don't know. I got a good choice. I got a good choice. Knowing Alex's, I got a good choice. I got a good choice. Well, it'll be it'll be best Disney character. So we'll talk about that later in the show. And what's your update, Alex? Before we bring on our guest, just update for Abe. My beloved bathhouse is back open. Oh, Oh, yeah. All is all is well in the world. Good. At least Great. we know. Thank God I didn't throw out my ten punch card. Right, 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 right. Our cards <laughs> are back. <laughs> I, I literally, he, when he told me, when he told me it was closed for three or four weeks, I'm like, no wonder that sucker gave me such a deal on a ten punch card. And Alex, <laughs> and Alex replies right away, "Me too." I'm like we got yeah. suckered. We think we did, or so we thought we did, but they're back. Good. That's a great marketing I could, scheme. I could use a trip down there and a trip to pizzeria mr pizza mr 01 yes listen if i were ever invited i would go to the bathhouse i've never been to one i've been to like like a spa like where you go to like a regular like steam room okay so this is it hands down we need to take paul to the bathhouse and videotape it make a documentary oh my god this is so cool you mean the water just comes (laughs) down and people can just walk around everywhere in here oh my god they have a cold room are those real crystals oh my god oh yeah dude it's really it's hot so, in here. Wow, oh, it's always just it? hot. Yeah. Ooh, the bench. Like... The bench is kind of hotter. Do people actually? How long do you guys stay in here? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Me. I've been in saunas before. Oh, like I, I've sat in saunas. This not is the sauna on another level. It really not is. We're gonna go. We got to schedule a KMA trip. I, I would go. We we could do a live. I mean, I we'll have to mosaic out if if you guys you know do the the naked way. I don't know, but you know we'll have to get the little. <laughs> they don't do the naked. No way, one's Paul. going anywhere with you where there's any nakedness going on, Paul. Well, you said so. Russian bathhouse. I assume. It's yeah, it's co-ed. it's co-ed. It's <laughs> co-ed. You're in you're in swim trunks. Oh my it's god. Co-ed? Huh. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> yeah, Alex, tell him about what who who drops by on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. Yes, the time to go is uh, Thursday, Friday. Saturday nights, roughly, right? roughly between six and seven p.m. Before the strippers go on their shift to get a nice schwitz in, they want gliss, to glisten up. Three pound, yeah, three pounds of water <laughs> weight mm-hmm. before they hit the stage. It's really good for your skin. I mean, I, right? It gets Great. all the toxins out of you. Absolutely, you do look Absolutely. very refreshed. Alex took oh, me once, and I, I was sold. I was yeah. sold. Liked it. Like, I'll it. have to check it out. In fact, Brandy and I went down there on a on an afternoon one day, and that's it. Hung out there the whole day too. So, all right, we have a very special guest today, um, and I've uh, been excited once he's you know uh, agreed to come on KMA Talk Radio. Uh, and let's bring on our Mickey Maker. Okay. Oh, I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. It's time to meet your maker. Joining us live from Washington, D.C., the executive director of the PCA, Mr. Scott Pierce. Scott, welcome to the show again. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. How's everybody doing? Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Doing good. How about you? Uh, well, I'm craving cheesesteaks and a nice steam. So I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you guys. <laughs> How dare you guys disparage the good name of Cheese Whiz, man. Oh, uh, you're a whiz guy? No, I, I prefer, so I went to culinary school. I prefer making my own sauce, which is, you know, with basically a white cheese sauce. So, yeah, but that's a little different than, than Wiz. Wiz is a strange concoction made in some factory somewhere. Cheese yeah, no, Wiz. Cheese Wiz is really when you're drunk. 
Yeah, it, cheese yeah, is yeah. one of those products I just consider like alien food. Like it's some cheese alien joke. and Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing in nature the color of milk. Yeah, I was milk. just gonna say, nothing natural can have that color. Yeah, well, pee, but that's about it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. So, <laughs> hello, I, Mr. Davis. I, I do have to say, Scott, in all the years in the history of the organization across its various names, you undoubtedly have to have had to have had and currently have the most interesting tenure of any. Uh, <laughs> Uh, director, president, or whatever the title is, at whatever period of time it was, of the yeah. PCA. Yeah, uh, it uh, has not been boring by any stretch of the imagination. That's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was uh, joking around with them when I said, you know, when you guys hired me, I came in, we were kind of on this, you know, whole steady path. The train was on its tracks, and I was like, I think you guys sold me a bill of goods because ever since then, it's been like I've been through one disaster movie after another. Yeah, you've had a rough time, and obviously a lot of criticism before your tenure, even uh, on the organization. And uh, you know, I can't imagine how difficult your job and position has to have been at times. But I think what we're going to do is kind of outline a chronological order from you know post twenty nineteen to kind of get us where we're at today. Um, sure. You know, and, and let's just start with the dropping i mean the the domino effect of majority kind of what happened started with i believe probably the announcement of the cigar expo event and whatever it was which kind of eventually led to the big four um pulling out which i think this year's trade show showed that you know look they are not a trade show can happen but you know i myself and i'm sure a lot of our listeners might be curious has there been any communication with those four companies? Are, are there any attempts to see if they will come back to the fold? Is there, any, I mean, do you foresee any possibility or are, are ties pretty much severed for those companies? No, not at all. We're in, in a lot of contact with them, quite frankly, uh, pretty consistently. I was actually supposed to be going up to the Connecticut Barn Smoker to go meet with Glenn Wolfson and have a good time up there, but unfortunately it was canceled. Uh, so Glenn's going to be coming here to D.C. Uh, in a few weeks and we're going to get together. I've maintained consistent contact with him. I feel like I've got a great relationship with Glenn. We've consistently reached out to all of our contacts within the Altadas uh, organization as well from Javier um, and uh, Brad Winstead, uh, all of our multiple uh, of them. I saw Dylan uh, from Davidoff at uh, an event here in DC uh, for at the Dominican embassy, went and said hi, talked with him and then had outreach as well to, to STG general and uh, the various companies and forged, et cetera, for, for all of them as well. Um, they all have business decisions to make. I understand that. I'm, I'm always the optimist. I always think that there's a path forward. As I look at this holistically, uh, look, I've been in association management now for over 20 years. And when I look at this holistically, it transcends industry, whether it's cigars or transportation and construction, which I came from, or uh, healthcare, uh, which is where I was at right before I came to uh, cigars. Uh, we have a really strong need, especially as we're kind of entering into a maturity level now here for this industry to really be, you know, a strong advocacy organization and advocacy industry. Uh, we have a need to, to have unity. And so I am very much optimistic that we can kind of get some stuff done. A lot of stuff. I think that the differences that necessitated or precipitated, I guess I should say, the, the pullout uh, have all kind of been taken care of by powers outside of all of our control, be it the FDA and court decisions. 
So I'm guardedly optimistic that that we can forge a path forward. Um, and it's just going to kind of take all of this sort of figuring that out uh, over the next little bit here to kind of come to terms with some of those things and some of those differences and realize that it's kind of always kind of exist, uh, but we need to to focus on the 95% when we're all together. Has anyone openly just said it's never going to happen? Oh, they've never, I, I haven't heard never, um, but um, I have heard that basically, you know, they've used some parallels between whether it's the uh, the PGA show, the golf show. Um, you know, Gene Richter at General kind of mentioned that aspect of people like Taylor made kind of wanting some different things with the trade show there. Um and that's that's fine. I mean, look, we're we're going to be diving into and pulling apart the trade show and what it means for for the modern era of this industry and how we can best meet the needs of retailers and manufacturers as far as that sort of tactical output of a business model is concerned for the trade show and B two B sales. But really, ultimately, I think it's much more about the industry and association as a whole, uh, representation, um, people at the table, decisions being made, how we forge our path forward again, especially in terms of relationships with the uh, the regulators out there, be it at the state community level or at the federal level. Sorry, writing some notes. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm, I'm, look, man, I'm used to putting people to sleep, so that's all right. Well, no, I'm try, I want to stay in chronological order. So you, you brought up something yeah. I, I'm going to want to address um, later on in the show. Um, so the big four pull out, mm-hmm. and then you're posed with, on top of that burden that you had to tackle, for the first year that I know of, um, the trade show had to be canceled. Um, and then there was a period of time where I think nobody was working in the office. How did that, this, that whole, because a lot of people's argument says, well, you know, you, we had a whole more time to plan a show because 2020, you know, 2020 got canceled. So now you have a whole time to plan this show that was going to happen in 2021. Do you feel that statement was accurate or do people not really understand the dynamics of what happened in that period between 2019 and 2021? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was it was a really interesting time to decide on the cancellation of that because COVID was really just kind of started hitting. We had kind of really no idea what was going on. And the other part of it, too, is, is that we have significant penalties in the contract if we cancel um, millions of dollars of penalties because we were that close to the date of the actual event happening. And so, you know, we had to be very careful and sort of really walk a very fine line on on how we were doing that. And it comes with these weird looks. The Sands is a huge corporation, right? And so we have like all like these little details that we have to hit, like the timing, who the message has to be sent to and how. Like I literally had to sign up for an e-fax because it stipulated in the contract that we had to fax notification to certain people. And so just kind of really weird how that kind of stuff happens, right? So the other side of that is, is that the cancellation happened. Uh, we were going through trying to work through, okay, if that's the case, we have no cash flow now because um, just to give everybody a little bit of perspective, once the cash comes in, generally speaking, it's before the trade show happens for the booths and sponsorships and things like that, right? And then when the show happens, the next year starts getting booked. And so that's sort of the cycle of cash flow for us. Obviously, a little bit different than what you kind of experience in your retail store. So that's kind of how that works that way. When we didn't have that, suddenly there was like, okay, we've got to figure out a way to make sure that we are, you know, cash flow positive for the next X amount of months um, without the trade show happening and some other things. Um, furloughed staff, myself and Josh came back basically the next day because we were like, look, here's 
we had to triage and say what is exactly that we're going to be able to do. And so Josh and I basically stayed there making sure we had our fight in California. We had, you know, fights that were in places like Michigan and some of these other places that we were still working on, as well as a lot of the stuff that was still going on with the FDA. So we worked through that for a few months and sort of bringing people back to begin, just as you talked about, uh, we had to start planning for the trade show and getting booths and everything else on the show floor kind of all back on, on point. As that led into the start of the year, the challenge was still we were all locked down. Vegas wasn't open and people were starting to cancel all of their 2021 events at this point. So that's when we started having conversations with the Sands. And there was a time there, even in the beginning of January, where they were actually thinking we were going to cancel the event. So we had discussions and everything was on the table and we had our board meeting that first uh, week of February. And the board said, look, we think by July, everything's going to be okay and open. We feel like we should go forward with it. And, and you and I talked actually, because you called me, we had, you know, four contingency plans. And one of which was kind of, you know, um, down there at the fairgrounds where you hold your event. You know, we were looking at Tampa, we were looking at New Orleans, where would hold us and where do we feel like we could put on a show if in fact Vegas in July couldn't happen. And again, which, knowing that was our first choice because we had the contract there. Which which is how I won a $5 bet from Eric Gutterberson <laughs> from the dojo because yeah. his bet was the show was going to happen. I got, I got wind from the fairgrounds people like, you know, somebody from the scar she's talking to us about a trade show you know anything about this one no and that's why i called you i said are you guys looking at the fairgrounds here because you know we already had experience with these guys i was yeah. figuring i could give you some feedback yeah. what's possible what's not possible there so i already known that you guys were we had a continue you know if if for whatever reason vegas didn't happen you were actively looking at plan b a b c d yeah. so I, I made that five dollar bet with eric which i won and he signed at the trade show and <laughs> thanks for the heads up on that insider information no absolutely yeah there's nothing to, yeah yeah in, yeah inside information that's not illegal in, in these bets i mean you know all right. so that's all good listen yeah. i told him when we just in his my defense i told him i said look i already know they're looking at other options you know vegas doesn't happen but he didn't buy it made the bet anyway he comes <laughs> he, he comes from the school of alex tavella <laughs> yeah. i had a i had a lock bet the other day that you backed out of <laughs> it's, Wait, it's the art, if the art it's, it's the art of knowing when to say bet done you know you threw the bet out there then you said uh ah. what was it again refresh my memory <sighs> it was unfortunately in our company like you want to bet is like every other sentence i know <laughs> i mean we can't even keep track of our bets sometimes yeah God, every yeah, time I show up there, there's a bet. It, it was one of those. It was ones a count where, of something. It was one of those ones I threw so. it out there, and then Alex seemed overly confident, and I started to question. I said, uh, "Maybe he's right." He was too. He was too quick to jump on it. <laughs> yes, know? absolutely. I was like, eh, eh, nah, "I gotta think." It was, think it was an inventory count of something or uh, something. So, what I'm curious to know, Scott, especially in light of what's going on currently in the world, how some areas are kind of regressing and shutting down again, and, and whatnot. When you were looking for those um, secondary outlets, did you have a viable secondary option should have Vegas canceled? Yeah, we we, uh, we had three very viable options, actually. Um, two of which, I mean, we'd already kind of um, gone down. We actually were, had somebody that was in the governor's office in Florida with DeSantis that was going to basically sign and say, hey, welcome. Yeah, you're going to be able to hold this. We were already working with local authorities in, in, um, in Tampa as well because we have some connections there. Um, and we'd already been working with the Tampa uh, Visitor Center there and, and the convention center. So we had those dates that were already kind of there with Tampa. We were just trying to make a decision kind of in a vacuum. 
And the problem with that is that there were other people that were trying to book Florida at the same time. Uh, but we also had New Orleans who was wanting us to come too. Um, just a little bit different dates. We still have the smoking exemption that's available in, in New Orleans for us to go there at that convention center should the, the, the need arise. I felt like, hey, look, you know, New Orleans in, in July for a trade show is brutal, but New Orleans, you know, you know, late fall, uh, you know, is is actually quite nice, and so that Vegas, might be a good option for us. Vegas in July is brutal. What's the difference? Yeah. The humidity. Uh, yeah, but you had the hottest, the hottest temperatures ever recorded in Vegas, right? You know, yeah. I, I hear this argument all the time about the humidity, but I just don't get it. When it's a hundred plus, hundred and ten, hundred and nine. Man, it don't matter what the humidity is. It's too brutal to be outside. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. No, I, I agree. I agree. I was I was done. I mean, because it was so crowded in Vegas, not to jump ahead on your timeline here, but just because it was so crowded in Vegas, it was brutal because I had to I couldn't I couldn't get a cap back from dinner one night. I had to walk thirty minutes in a suit, you know, in a hundred and ten degree heat all the way back to my hotel. I was dead. By the time I got in, I was like, Well, this suit's done and just crumpled it up and threw it in the closet. <laughs> they had they had a lot, a lot of major attractions and things going on at the time we're in Vegas. Yeah. They they had Garth Brooks at the Raiders Stadium. Um who else was there? There was uh, there was the McGregor fight. McGregor fight, yeah. You yeah, had Joe Rogan. You had Joe Bruno Rogan. Mars, yeah. Luke Bryan. They had a lot of things going on. So yeah, it was a crowded time. Yeah, yeah. So um, so we so leading up to it, we really had no idea if Vegas was going to let us do. It. Vegas kept kind of following California in terms of lockdowns and limits and everything. And we at the same time, I'm in negotiations with the property to do these different things. And and so and they were telling me one thing and they had their group that was trying to lobby the governor there and everything, too. And so what ended up happening is the world of concrete came in and the world of concrete is one of the biggest shows that happens in Las Vegas. Um, and that was preceded us by just about three weeks. And they were coming in saying, look, we generally get, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that come in for this thing. Um, if you guys want to have continue to have this and, and bring some money back into the city, we need to figure out a way to get this done. So that's when they said, hey, look, June 1st, that's when he came out with a mandate. He said, June 1st, we're going to put everything back to the counties. But we couldn't wait till June 1st to see if we were going to be able to smoke on the show floor, if they were going to make exhibitors put up partitions and all the stuff that they were telling us, and if they were going to limit how many people we could have. If we had to have pods, for example, was something that they threw out at us. So we effectively had to – what we did is we built a um, – uh, we had to go through and do like a large uh, exhibit, not a large, a large show plan that we had to submit to Las Vegas and to Nevada. And they had to approve it. And we basically just said, look, we're going to put this out there that makes our show exactly how we want it to happen. So there's going to be smoking. We can't we can't commit to having people stay six feet apart when you're discussing business and business terms. That's not feasible. Nor are we going to put the burden on our exhibitors to try to build all these new things and partitions and everything. So. When we did that, um, we submitted it, and then on April 6th, they gave us the approval that we could actually do this. Uh, but as part of that, then it said, okay, you have to use Hall C for your registration area, and you have to keep all this space open because they didn't want people congregating in the areas where we would normally have registration. So we had to kind of finagle things and move things around. At that point, we knew we could kind of do these things, but we had to start moving stuff around. And at that point, we knew then as well that they would be lifting. We wouldn't have to wear masks so at that point, is basically April 6th, we knew we didn't need the contingency plans anymore. So we had from basically April 6th on that we knew we could kind of we could do the show this way. There was an interesting thing with the show this year, which I'd never seen before. And um, 
I really didn't even know about it until after the show. But was this, I think this had to be the first time ever that some cigars were sold through the PCA site this year? So that, yeah, that actually wasn't a part of the trade show. This is something new that we started and we basically were sort of wading into the water before kind of going out. We wanted to make sure we could walk before we run with this. But basically the idea came about, um, it, it started really kind of at the cancellation of last year. And we went through different versions in, in talking about this. Um, and I'm happy to kind of go down the strategic rabbit hole with you if you really want to. But um, I don't know if your listeners really care about that so much. But really, ultimately, the idea was this, is that um, let's let's offer a way for manufacturers to to offer PCA retailers maybe a special deal or a special product at a limited time or, or, or even a PCA exclusive product uh, for you know 30 or 60 days, only available through this specific product hub that retailers can only access. And then uh, part of being on that portal for the manufacturers is they agree to donate a certain portion of sale per cigar or box back to the PCA advocacy fund. And so it really kind of comes in as it's a donation. It's really just sort of a pay-as-you-go, almost like advertising uh, platform type of thing. So like Platinum Nova did it, Rocky did it with some special deals on his. Pete did it with a special size on on some of his black label. You know, Veritas did it. Uh, and so uh, it was actually pretty successful. We heard from a lot of retailers that really liked it. The manufacturers really liked it, and they really pushed through a lot of inventory. Um, so we're going to bring it back, but we – we kind of are, are going to um, give the manufacturers a little bit of a breath because I know that they're um, wanting to fill the orders from the trade show and get things back on track. And uh, you probably know better than most people that uh, right now some of the manufacturers are just trying to get back to where they can fulfill orders on a timely fashion. Yeah, that was interesting. I'd never seen that before. I mean, I heard about it literally after the fact. Probably our buyer knew it. Um, but uh, and, and, and basically, I'm just curious in my own sense you guys are just taking orders but the manufacturers were fulfilling them still right yeah so effectively all you do is you go and there's no you don't pay anything on the pca side so as a retailer you come in and you effectively just give um your commitment um i mean you did it with the black label i think that you know you purchased x amount for the black label you do say i want x number of boxes you do it it's zeroed out then that gets sent off to the manufacturer who then calls um making sure a they can fulfill the amount of boxes you want so it's just a commitment or a promise that you're going to buy those boxes and then be, again, to protect the manufacturers, no sales guaranteed. Again, we said, look, if your account's not in good standing, if you're in arrears or something like that, there's no guarantee that you're going to get the products. But all things being equal, one of the things that we do ask the manufacturers if they're going to do this is that it has to be available for people who are not current, um, don't have current accounts with you. So they can sell to, to, to those that are not current accounts as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So that every retailer has an opportunity. There's an interesting angle because if you're, I guess, a retailer, well, th th see, that, that that probably makes the most sense to me because now if I'm a retailer and for whatever reason I don't have an account, I could pick up, as part of a benefit of being a PCA member, I could pick up some cigars that normally might not be available to me. Exactly. I like it. I like it. Um, this year's show, and I've been giving thanks to God, the footprint was a lot smaller. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a lot easier to navigate. Yes, uh, yes. There was a lot of running around for me this year. Um, there was, you know, there was a lot of shows, and I'm sure you've listened or heard of them after the PCA of people talking. Or is, is there, is there, was there any thoughts of trying to get ancillary businesses involved that could have filled that showroom floor? Because you know, when we kind of talk about because everybody, 
a lot of people when they critique or they talk about this they don't realize how small this this trade show is for such a small industry normally when you have industry shows like this it's for thousands and thousands and thousands of members and you know i i think if if every decent a and b and maybe c plus retailer came to the trade show you're talking about a couple thousand members at best yeah at best and then if you wanted to, and everybody's talked about how you know the liquor side a lot so many more stores are now opening with bars and bars and stuff but you know and, and that that sounds great because the bar stuff goes hand in hand with what we do now and it's becoming more so and it's evolving more so into that market but you know you're still talking probably about a couple hundreds you know hundreds of retailers who maybe would have use of that so it's not i don't think as easy as it sounds yeah there's also some things uh just real quick to address casey's comment uh it's not a manufacturer direct to consumer through the product hub it's manufacturer direct to retailer Re I mean, consumers are not allowed to purchase through the product hub it's only pca retailer members um so just to clarify there there is no direct to consumer through through the pca it's all direct to retailer consumers can't be members of the pca if anybody no. knows that if you're going to answer casey questions we could be here all day okay just a fair yeah. warning yeah, no, fair enough. No. So, yeah, so in terms of that, we actually had a few liquor companies that we were working with this year uh, who were working with some of the other uh, companies and, and others that we had connections with, like Jack Daniels, for example. The problem is that the the Sands um, is about as uh, easy to – after negotiations with them, I've said I would rather play poker with Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Kemper, and, and um, Ted Bundy than I would go through those negotiations again because it, it's insane. But basically, as a liquor company – even if you own the liquor, you still have to buy it from the Sands at their price wow. and then bring it in there and pay for the bartender that's and everything a, that's else. A typical, that's a typical thing. They have to do that at the fancy food show in New York, too, every year. They, so, have to sell, they sell the product and then they buy it from the, yes. the company that runs the trade show. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So basically, Florida Kanye, I was working with them and try to put a package together for them. And I was like, look, I'll do whatever I can to get you on the show floor I'll, you know, on this end, right? Comp, whatever the case may be, because I know it's going to be expensive on the other side for you guys. And uh, I put the package together and took it to the executives. And they're like, yeah, this probably just doesn't make a lot of sense for us at this point. So we have looked into that. And, and there are multiple ways in which we can incorporate that. Um, and that's part of what we're looking forward to, to doing is that how do we do this in a way, again, understanding that we're B2B and we're here to help service retailers and manufacturers to build business, grow, you know, profits and, and reduce expenses, right? That's what we're trying to solve. The trade show is a big part of that, but how do we upgrade that? How do we evolve that to A, be better, but also B, do that throughout multiple times of the year because one time of the year just doesn't work for, for businesses. You know, you've you got to have multiple points of, of being able to take advantage of those benefits. I mean, like for a guy like me, I would love to be able to walk the trade floor and look at companies selling new glassware, bar furniture, stuff like that. But I think ultimately yeah. the problem with that is it's still it's it's even a smaller segment of a already small segment. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. You know, the interesting thing is that for us, at least, we still have a, a, a really good competitive rate as far as price per square foot. Uh, to your point earlier, right? The attendance is always going to be pretty low just by the nature of the size of the industry. I was at a trade show in 2019 and 
the show floor was about half our size and yet the attendance was over 10,000 people and the trade show floor still never felt like it was super crowded. And so we've always kept our price per square foot lower because we have some of these uh, folks that have purchased really large booths. And so that price per square foot in their total purchase for that booth stays lower. So for a company to come in and looking at it, like when, for example, some of these companies who have done other uh, industries and trade shows and stuff looked at it. They're like, well, what's the cost for, you know, 10 by 10? I was like, well, it's, you know, 2395. They're like, Oh, okay. That's easy. Um, and so it's the other costs that kind of start coming in. So what about furniture? What about electrical, et cetera, that that can, you know, start to tack up a little bit. Uh, but as far as just securing your booth space, it really isn't, you know, uh, that high of a burden to, to purchase. I mean, when I was in healthcare, for example, 10 years ago, I was selling a table, a six foot table for $2,500 in a room of 200 people. And so when you cost compare and things like that, it, it is a pretty uh, good competitive rate to get a, a boost space. Your point, though, is, is that, OK, so um, and this is the, this is the economic a- aspect that we need to take a look at. How many of the people that are coming are going to be really, really interested buyers who are the decision makers looking at things like bar furniture and glassware? And how likely is it that they're going to place an order? And what is the average order they're going to place for that type of stuff? And that's something that's easy to go back and say, look, your ROI is going to be higher because it's not necessarily just about lead generation. When you're coming to a show like this, you're, you can expect to make X amount in sales and your, you know, interaction, your sale per interaction is going to be X amount. And that's what you can expect. And that's a good selling point. And a lot of business services that we've had at the show have said that the ROI is great for them. So whether it was the texting platform that we had or insurance, things like that, um, they, they they say that it's 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 actually a pretty good ROI for them because we have interested buyers and decision makers at the show. Speaking of insurance, is there insurance for putting on shows? Should there be a pandemics or cancellations or there's nothing to hedge a bet these days? I'm not even sure. Yeah, we have showstopper insurance, but it, the only real um, act of God type of thing that that kind of takes into consideration is going to be weather and or terrorist events. Um, there's nothing as far as a pandemic, and that's why most of like the, the trade show world was sort of torn asunder when the pandemic hit. And now you can't get pandemic clauses in, in showstopper if you do your pain uh, out the ass for it. It's, it's pretty wow. insane. So, I mean, if you remember, you know, one of my first things that happened when I came on in 2018 was he had the norovirus outbreak at the Westgate Hotel. So I had to cancel the stuff there and we had to build all the stuff out across the hall in the Las Vegas Convention Center. And then we had the fire at the convention center. So I mean I literally brought brought you know the you know the the four horsemen coming in with plagues and, and fires and cancellations and all that other shit that came with it when I started at this place. So maybe I'm the bad luck charm. I don't know. <laughs> From what you're telling me is Vegas, especially in its current format, the way the show's kind of been done, is Vegas really a viable option anymore? Has it just become too expensive and too hard to deal with Vegas? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, of weight behind that assumption. Uh, and, and just in my own experience, it is becoming um, more and more difficult. And I think that the one thing that they like to kind of play their hand with there is that they allow us to smoke. And there's just not a lot of places that have that size because I've looked. Um, so, for example, that show that I just talked about in 2019, it's a, it's a trade show basically for associations and for people that put on shows and events. And I must have talked to 50 different venues about their size capabilities, would they allow us to smoke, et cetera. Now, some of the challenges is that a lot of the places that are big, they've renovated, they're lead certified, therefore we can't smoke. 
And so I've looked into a lot of different options. Um, you know, Florida is obviously going to be one of the top places that we would look at if it's not in Vegas. We still have the exemption in New Orleans. But I was even looking at places. So I was talking to Indianapolis. They've got a beautiful convention center. But they said no. But they immediately introduced me to the guy who runs all the events for Lucas Oil Stadium. He said, come on to the stadium. We'll open up the roof. You're good to go. So then we'd have to kind of reimagine again. What are we going to do with the trade show? Because we're not going to fit the whole trade show floor on a football field. But I got to imagine that we would all kind of have a hell of a lot of fun on the football field having a B2B trade show, even if we didn't have, you know, some of the boosts that we had. And this year, I think, to your point, prove that. We don't necessarily need to have, you know, a, a, a monstrous event with with these, you know, I mean, God, some of these booths are just, they're, they're gorgeous, they're ornate, they're beautiful, and they're expensive as hell and bigger than some aspects of a lot of stores I've been in, right, um, and, and more expensive. And, and so in that aspect, if we scale that down, the idea here is, again, how do we get to reduce costs for manufacturers and retailers and increase sales? And I think that if we start to imagine things like a Lucas Oil Stadium or smaller regional shows and things like that, I think we start to get to that point where we're fulfilling the needs and, and answering those pain points for everybody and simultaneously answering and giving you guys better benefits and better gains out of it and reducing costs. I've said for many, many years that the show had to be trimmed and scaled down. Just like a plant, you have to mm -hmm. trim it down. Otherwise, you just let it grow wild, and it ends up causing a lot of problems. And I, and and I also think that the smaller footprint leads to better business being done. I was able to run around and see more people and do more business because I was wasting less time walking miles all over the place and then getting beat up and having to stop and really just sit down for 20, 30 minutes because I'm beat up from walking like way too much and whatnot. So I, I actually think that the smaller footprint led to better business being done and more business being done actually for me. 100%. Um, I, I experienced that too because I, I run around like crazy throughout the whole day. The smaller footprint allowed me to see every exhibitor there multiple times. It allowed me kind of that opportunity. I wasn't nearly as tired at the end of the day from, from all the walking. Um, and so it, uh, it definitely, uh, again, when we get back to it, the point of the trade show is not, um, it's not a car show, right? It's not this, that aspect of it. You're really looking to sit down, do business, meet with your vendors and, and do, go through that. So when we really try to look at this, it's a lot more akin to what the travel industry created a long time ago called hosted buyer programs, where you're really sitting down and trying to go through and plan, place orders, et cetera. And so I think that, uh, when we focus on that aspect, I think it's going to open up a lot more opportunities for us, um, not only in terms of the design of the show, but that opens up locations. That opens up different times of year. It opens up a lot more possibilities and I think answers a lot of the uh, questions and, and, like I said, pain points and problems that some people are experiencing with uh, one trade show one time a year. Well, Scott, we got to take a short, short break at the top of the hour, but in hour two, we're going to hit more with Scott Pierce talk about the future of the PCA show, what changes may be in store, what they're thinking about, where it may eventually lead. Also, we have a very special edition of Tale of the Tape. Um, William Cooper is on sabbatical uh, this weekend, so uh, you know, but we, I have won't have, pick. we won't have the, the news with Scoop, but we do have a special edition of Tale of the Tape, the best Disney character. So stick around for hour two. Keep it lit. The H. Upman 1844 Classic is a medium-bodied cigar with wonderful flavor notes of toasted almonds, cocoa, coffee, and just a hint of spice. 
featuring an Ecuadorian Connecticut shade wrapper, you get wonderful aroma notes of sweet coffee and chocolate. Available in a Corona, Robusto, Toro, and Churchill, this is a great time to experience the nuances of nature with the H. Ubman 1844 Classic, a shade above others. Surgeon General Warning. Cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes. Hey, babe. Yeah? I'm almost out of wine, and I want to order some online. Where should I order from this time? KMAWines.com, of course. KMAWines.com? What's that? What's that? What's that? Hold on a second. Let me show you. You see, KMA has teamed up with Bonner Fine Wines to offer KMA listeners a fantastic deal on a Malbec three-wine sampler. You see, here is their famous Malbec grown at an altitude of 8,950 feet. Three wines from the edge of the world. An old French Malbec variety no longer found in Europe. These three wines, 200 years in the making, yours, KMA listeners, for 53% off. Normally $130, but like I said, KMA listeners get 53% off. That makes it $69.99. So what do you think? I think we should order. I agree. And done. I got to tell you, that's hilarious. Amazing. Well done, Paul. Our dear friend Kevin and Jess picking up the slack for Paul DeGracco with our KMA Bonner wine ads. Thank you, Kevin. Kudos. Got something special headed your way. But yeah, got to love the soap and the beard. He told me he told me last night I was talking to him and he said he said I had to take three showers and I got so much soap in my eyes and with the glasses on. It kept seeping down into his eyes. It's like, oh, God, I said, that's why I wore a shower cap during mine. There, <laughs> there you have some really hardcore fans. So <laughs> kudos to you guys. It was awesome. It was great. Thank you, Kevin and Jess, both. Awesome. Well done. And uh, Scott, we have a very special segment sponsored by Avo Cigars called As the Record Spins. And our good friend Eddie Guerra from Avo has a question specifically for you in this segment. All right, Scott, the question Eddie has for you, if you could play one instrument masterfully without any lessons, which would it be and why? I'm going to go piano just because I... uh, Inner inner Liberace in you? <laughs> sure. If uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I even come. I'm not even the same stratosphere of flamboyance as far as that's concerned, or presentation, or anything else. But uh, no, I, I, I attempted to play it as a kid. I've, uh, I've always loved piano. I've always loved um, all the various uh, aspects of it, whether it's you know jazz piano or whether it's classical, whether it's you know anything from you know Chopin to ragtime or whatever the case may be. I've always loved it, and uh, I would love to be able just to sit down and play anything uh, at any time with the piano. 
So would, would, would this be more of a, you know, Bach, Libera, Bach Beethoven style piano playing, uh, Liberace, Elton John, or like more of a Jerry Lee Lewis type of piano playing? God, I would say all of the above. I mean, one of the things I, I, I quite love is I love the like the you know, see it kind of now like on YouTube. You'll see people that'll get there and they'll take like uh, modern rock and roll songs and they'll take and they'll arrange them on a piano and they just go crazy and play it all. It's it's actually really cool. Like one of the and where I really kind of got into that. Here's my inner nerd coming out. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the the new Battlestar Galactica. I say new, but like the the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Great series. Uh, yeah, so the guy who did the music for that is a guy by the name of Bear McCreary. He's done a lot of different ones like uh, Black Sails, et cetera. But he did a rendition of All Along the Watchtower um, in, in Piano Method, and that was kind of that was very integral, obviously, to the storyline of the, the show. But there's this rendition of it that's just – it's awesome. And, like, that's the kind of stuff I love is, like, taking something like that and, and being able to do that on the piano would just be – for me, it would be awesome just to stand and do that kind of stuff. My 13-year-old daughter is into that mode. So, you know, my, my wife was very uh, – you know, hard on making sure that all the, any instruments they started playing would be a classical instrument. So she wanted them all classically trained, but she's really digging, taking rock and roll songs and playing them on the violin or piano. And now she wants an electric guitar. So that's awesome. I, I think that's going to be her birthday gift, but she's, you know, being classically trained and loving. And, and, and what I love is my kids, you know, while they know a lot of music that I will never know, and you know, or, hear or never heard of um they're still all like into elvis and Jimi hendrix and the rolling stones and led zeppelin so yes. she loves taking these kind of classic rock songs and finding a way to play it on the violin the piano last which, time i was at your house she played bohemian rhapsody on the piano yeah I mean, which which i thoroughly awesome. i thoroughly enjoy so that's yeah. awesome oh i love that yeah well, that is our as your record spin segment by avo cigars thank you eddie guerra wait hold um, on a second what about you what about I want to know what? what you would say. Instrument? Yeah. Do you, you play know, any instruments? I I think I started an instrument once when I was a kid. My parents didn't want me to, and then I quit, which they called it. Um, <laughs> literally, they I, they called. That's it. why they didn't want you to start. Yeah, yeah. They, they called. Well, no one in my family was musically inclined, and they weren't. They could care less if I ever picked up an instrument. Um, I think I took trumpet lessons in school and then that failed and then i really wanted to learn the electric guitar so i went to like the guitar center that was giving out lessons you know and you know i i you know i, I remember one time it was like you know he, they didn't even want they were just taking your money but they didn't really want to teach you how to play music They're like all right what songs do you want to learn how to play all right so i'm like you know uh should we all night long acdc right <laughs> so <laughs> so the dude writes writes out how to play it what i did and I go home for a week, and I'm like, man, this guy didn't write the right song. It sounds nothing like it. And I actually have the balls to go back to him. And I say, man, I played this all week. This ain't the right music. Like, Dude, it's the right music. You just don't know how to play it. And it literally was the right music. I didn't know how to play it. So I think I think I quit after that cussing out session. So, um, I mean, watching my kids play, um, I, you know, it, it's really funny because I'm going to have to say drums. Really? Okay. Yeah, because I kind of want my son. You know, my my son's now seeing his three older sisters be in music. Wants to play music, um, and I just I I think he's deep down he's a percussionist. He loves banging. He's got rhythm. He's got a beat, and um, I don't think my wife's ever going to let him start out with the drums. I just don't no. think it's going to. I don't think it's going to happen. But um, 
I, how I long? He, how long will your wife make him take lessons for something else before he would transition to drums? I, that's a good question. I, I, you know, none of our kids have gotten there. I mean, now, I mean, my daughter's thirteen now. She's been playing violin since four, and then picked up the piano a few years wow. ago. But, um, you know, my wife's got no issues with her now getting electric guitar. So, you know, she's all for it. But I guess she just wants them to get classically trained before they start delving into it. And um, I think my son behind a drum set would rock it. You know, I think he'd love it. And, uh, you know, you know once, he get, once he gets into it and starts, you know, who knows? I, you know, he, he is the spoiled one of the four, being the youngest. So, you know, and, and that's the way it happens, I guess. It was the same way with, with me growing up. You know, I was the oldest. So I had to fight every fight with my parents. What do you mean I got to be home by 10 o'clock? Everybody's out, says out till 11, you know? I mean, all these arguments. And then I go to college and I come home my first weekend or and whatever, and my brother's coming home at two in the morning. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I used to have, <laughs> I used to, have to fight to come home at 11 o'clock, 11.30, this guy's out till one, two in the morning. Yep. So I, I just think parents get worn down or they learn <laughs> it's not so bad or whatever. So the youngest one always is going to get away with murder or have the most, you know, freedom as far as doing stuff. Or as the youngest, my theory is that the parents get better at making kids. So by the time they hit the last one, they've got the best kid. And they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Case in point right here. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, Scott, you must be the youngest in your family. The youngest of seven, my friend. Five older sisters. Go. I paid my due, so I got to do whatever I wanted. That sounded like such a self-serving statement. It had to be the case. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm also my mom's favorite, and my all siblings all know that, so it's all good. That, that's funny. I say the same statement. I'm my parents' favorite, and it's undeniable. Like I think if you ask my parents, they'll tell you I'm their favorite. <laughs> At um, this point, your dad's like, yeah, we can say it now. Yeah, right, Charlie, right. Creek, Charlie Creekmore said you know, don't say the flute, but I'm going to tell you something, man. Um, Jethro Tull rocked the flute pretty good. Absolutely. He rocked the flute pretty good. Dick is a brick is one of my all time favorites. Yeah. He, he rocked that. He rocked that instrument pretty good. So you know, the you flute's can, not an easy instrument to play either. You can make the flute cool, I guess. So that being said, um, you know, I just want to say, cause I'm smoking a cigar that I'm thoroughly impressed with right now. And we have a very small. We don't batch. hear that very often. Yeah, we have a very small batch of these left. This is the Alex. Do you know what I'm smoking? Uh, I can't un tell. Un unbanded from my stash. This is one of the handful. When I say handful, it's literally like maybe less than fifty cigars that we have left from the Connoisseur Club, Steve Saka, first. Oh. First run. Um, what month was that? What, what month was he the first in? Was that June? I want to say April. Or April? April. April. So this is from the April Connoisseurs Club. Um, this was shine just, on that. Let me tell you something. This cigar was specifically blended for our Connoisseur Club. And if you're out there listening and you don't know what our Connoisseur Club is about, um, go check it out at smoking.com. Hit the Connoisseur Club tag. It's a very small cigar program limited to only 500 people. There's still openings available. But it's probably the most unique smoking experience and program you could be involved in. Everybody who's kind of in it's having a lot of fun. Um, basically, we ask some of the top manufacturers or industry to blend something new and specific and never made before for our small group of members. And you guys get them and don't know who made them or anything about them and have to smoke them and then find out later. And uh, this has been thoroughly enjoyable, this whole show. There so, it is. 
I'm sure it's even better now. You know, it it, it was good off the bat. Now you now yeah. since April, it's got a couple of years of age on its, and it's probably even better. Well, so. you see. Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't sure about that blend. I don't think anybody should try it. You know, I didn't have enough of that certain Liga, and it's very limiting in making a cigar at only like 600 sticks. You know, it's very hard to get the roll of the production and the the cadence of the rollers to make 600 quality sticks. Don't don't buy it. Nobody's going to buy it. it. Don't buy it. Totally Saka. So... <laughs> Oh, wait, I, I have the. Oh, I, I was too late on it. No, here's the video clip. Good evening, everybody. Honest Abe here from Smoking Headquarters in Boynton Beach, Florida. Kudos to you, Steve, for making one hell of a stick. Well, they actually don't know that the stick's any good at it yet. Okay, so <laughs> Paul had no idea what I was. How did you have that in the queue? I keep that one. I have a couple of I have a couple of, of video clips like this one. Oh my mommy, my mommy. I keep them in in our library so we you can just play. Never them. know. Yeah. I'm telling you, Paul had no idea what I was going to smoke today. Or I was going to say that. So kudos to you that you had that ready. <laughs> that just that proves how in sync you guys are. That is. Totally yeah, <laughs> that bothers it. Look at him. It, it like cut through his soul when you said that. He's like, oh. That. <laughs> That is totally Steve Saka. All right, Scott. Now to get in the meat and potatoes of what I'm sure most people right. are listening for this morning. The future of the PCA. Do you feel that in its current format, the PCA can continue to exist? I'll say yes, but with a caveat. Um, it, the, the organization really, as most organizations are for an industry, sort of reflects the industry at large. And by that, I mean, yes, it can exist, but it's not going to be what it needs to be for the industry. And so we're we're at a, a pretty good crossroads right now as far as the premium cigar industry. And, you know, look, it's been, what, about what, 11, 12 years with uh, the Tobacco Control Act. And so really thrown, you know, headfirst into how do we advocate for ourselves? How do we do X? How do we do Y? How do we do Z? And so it's been a lot of growing pains, I think, over the past decade or so of getting to this point. But now I think really ultimately we as an industry need to take the next step and, and say, okay, we're an industry that needs to consistently advocate for ourselves the way that so many do, right? Alcohol, liquor, healthcare, transportation, all these other industries, the movie industry, right? The Motion Picture Association was founded you know, a long time ago because they didn't want to get censored by the federal government. So you have all these industries. And so the organization and the rest of the industry all kind of needs to take kind of a really big evolutionary step just going to tell a little bit of an anecdote right now to sort of illustrate what I mean by that. I had a message from a member out in California that was kind of upset about some of the things that were going on in California, most of which is completely out of our control. And even if we spent a hundred million dollars there, we wouldn't be able to fix this issue. But it was somebody who tied their dues and didn't pay their dues in 2020 because there was no trade show. And so the flip side, you can't hold these two thoughts in your brain at the same time and have the same expectation, which is if I'm paying for a ticket to the trade show, how am I expecting so much advocacy on my behalf when I'm not paying for it? And so that's kind of what we talked about a little bit of why we, again, first time ever had a treasurer's report at the, uh, at the annual meeting this year to say, guys, look, 2019, which was a you know good year for membership. We got $433,000 in dues from retailers. We spent $2.5 million on retail benefits, whether it's lobbying, advocacy, legal, uh, trade show stuff, benefits, so on and so forth, just on retailers alone. So to your point in its current format, it's not sustainable. 
And so the future really is ultimately, how do we make this a 365 day a year organization? And how do we get how do we get the entire industry on board with what a mission statement is for the organization? And how is it that we go ahead and translate a good solid business foundation of the association and then use those proceeds to fight our fights? Because at the end of the day, funnily enough, kind of what you were talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, you always got those guys that are calling saying, Hey, I saw you sold any cigars. I'm sorry. I'm a little late. You have something for me. There's a lot of that. I mean, that's, that's across the board. I'd get the same thing, you know, my position, whether it's booths or some of these other things or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But, you know, at the end of the day, really ultimately what I've said is that we've got to build a business unit here at PCA to where we're providing benefits that people want to pay for and use those proceeds to fight the battles. And we can still have fundraising as part of what we're doing, but we can't rely upon altruism and things like that and donations to, to fight or fight. That has to be a part of a multi-layered strategy that we have in order for us to be as, as effective as we need to be and have the means to be able to do what we need to do long term. So, you know, we're um, the good news is, is that we've had some structural changes already. Right. We opened up elections. We had an open election for the entire membership that was able to cast votes. Both three new board members, Jay Davis, I think, is still listening. He's one of them, you know, Mary Zarmack and then Todd Johnson. So it's no longer the board kind of electing new board members. It's the entire membership. Right. Um, so that's new. We opened up and did treasurer's reports. Um, monthly reports now are going to be coming from the executive committee. Uh, and we're getting together to do a big strategic planning session as a board and trying to get feedback from multiple people, opening up committees so that everybody, manufacturers, brokers, media, whomever can participate on these committees to help us get this work done, because as you pointed out, we're way too small of an industry to rely upon just a handful of people trying to do all the work and make all the decisions. So you talked, you touched base on a lot of things that I'm, I want to get to, but I'm trying to keep in the flow of what we're talking about at the moment. It's a show within itself and it's, and it's feasibility. Um, I do want to tell Marshall Scott Henry that in Alex's defense, as we unloaded our storage air facilities and moved them all into the warehouse, a lot of things were buried and we've come across gems so alex probably didn't even know that there was some found of the cigar so somewhat i give him i give him some, some sockets yeah it's from the original month uh, I guess, I guess there's Marshall. no sockets left for sale there's uh you know your little well, stash we, that you we have found, we, well we also found a lot of stuff as we moved over stuff I don't know, there's no there's no sockets bro no there's enough to do a little something with i think mm, i think what you have there is what you have I, I smell a bet coming on. It is. Yeah. I think I think there's more here than you realize. Mm, but anyway, I think so. Anyway. Hey, we're gonna do a live on air bet. No, I think so. I, I, I <laughs> we, want... we never give details of the bet. Yes, good man. So Scott, look here. Here's the problem, because I don't I don't know if you caught the episode of uh, Developing Pallets where they had me and Steve and um, mm -hmm. Eric and Coop on and Aaron Loomis. Um, What people have to realize is whatever good that the PCA does, or whether it be putting on a better event, whether it be legislation on a regional or national level, I mean, legislation on a regional, national level, anything, it all requires funding, mm -hmm. right? So whether it's memberships or whether it's an event, the, the fuel of the money helps grow and reinvest. I mean, I battle this all the time. You know, people think, oh, we're doing great. We're doing great, but we're, we also take that money and spend it you know, reinvesting it, trying to make things better, you know? Um, so one of the things we brought up, which I thought was a fabulous idea, was to try to 
elevate this almost into a celebratory type of an event, like a festival like they have in Cuba and Pro Cigar, where it would be just the celebration of cigars, which would then be something incorporated with not only manufacturers and retailers, but to end consumers at the same time, not so much being just a trade show, right? That it would be this three, four day things that people could buy tickets for, either a la carte or a full pass. And now instead of catering to 1,200, 500, 800 people, you could get thousands of consumers to get involved and really spike up the, the revenue. And I don't know if that information ever made it to your ears or got to your door. Yeah, um, it, it kind of feels like uh, A, yes, but B, also, um, I'm just going to say great might sink alike. Maybe I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in good company considering we're tracking along the, the same wavelength there. Um, that's something that, that when um, Consumer Day, so my first day on the job, I flew down to TAA 2018 and went up into a conference room the next day, and they kind of already started to talk about, you know, what would Consumer Day look like, et cetera, and I had to be brought up to speed real quickly on it. And so even from that very first point, then like this whole aspect of how do we do something on a larger scale has kind of been there. And so, um, you know, your your idea here and your point here is is very well made and something that we have talked about at the leadership levels as far as, you know, the trade show is the trade show. And but there's another there, there's a lot of reasons why like a big public vocal event is necessary for us. Not only is it a good way to to, to raise funds, no question about that, and, and you know better than, than most because of the successful event that you hold, but at the end of the day too, is that we need something as an industry that showcases what we are as an industry. The trade show is a small part of that, but because it's a closed members buying only type of event, we really need something that showcases the very best of the industry. And then going back to your earlier question, getting some of these parallel industries, whether it's luxury, you know, watches or Harley Davidson that we've talked to before about potentially partnering and coming in liquors, other aspects of anything that has to do around the cigar lifestyle that fine wine, food, everything starts to become a part of that. Because to your point, then it becomes a festival that's driven around the love of cigars. And then, then you can have all of these other, so that's thousands of people. And that's, you know, a lot out of, of different uh, interests that are there. So being able to be there really ultimately is a great platform. And I've talked about that saying, look, you know, when you look at consumer electronics show, the consumers aren't necessarily there, but what that serves is a great platform to launch products, to get the products out there in the news. And I think that this type of event would could be something that we could institutionalize as that. And then the buying aspect of the retailer to manufacturer happens separate from that in much more cost-effective ways, much more intimate ways during peak seasons, during seasonality when it's necessary so that you have multiple times. It's not about the deal necessarily. It's about being able to have continuous buying opportunities and relationships with the vendors at the right times. I mean, that's yeah. how every other industry I've ever been in is like, I've been to CES a bunch of times. If you want to see how to run a trade show, it's massive. It's overwhelming how big it is, yeah. but they do a, a super, super job at putting that thing together and it's cool but i, I yeah. worked for an ad agency where we went you know two or three years in a row it was more for fun than anything else in all honesty it was that kind of event that if it's fun that's what will get people to ultimately want to go and exactly that's, that's been my argument for over a decade now um and and there are these celebrations that exist whether it's pro cigar or pure sabor right. or whatever it is we need one in this country you know, and we could have like ancillary events, like a poker tournament, like this, like that, whatever it is, and that people would come together 
and like you said, incorporate different settings in which business can be done. Because I think that was one of the biggest problems is I think with, you know, consumer day was it was mixing two separate things at once. Exactly. And, 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 and I was one of the guys who I didn't think it was a great idea. Um, uh, and I talked out about publicly about it. Um, I thought it was a bad idea. And then, and then to boot, like I would have liked to seen the PCA not to just regurgitate and present another of the same type of festival. There's so much better things that could be done that are not haven't been done or can't be done because most of us don't have a Vegas venue. If I could do my event in Vegas, I mean, yeah, it would probably cost a lot more. But holy cow, the stuff I can come up with just because you literally have everything in the world available to you in Vegas. Um, So uh, something really special could be done. And um, I think a lot of us had talked about it during that night was hoping that there'd be some kind of evolution. But that kind of evolution takes a lot of work, which brings to the other point, you know, and people forget that everybody who sits on the board is a volunteer. It's a very time-consuming job. And um, it's not a full-time job for anybody other than you and a few handful of people. Um, and putting on these kind of events is extraordinary work. Um, how does your role play? Do you have free reign or ultimately are you answering to what decisions the board makes? Because for me, the board is not not people who are really I mean, they all are volunteering their time, but I served my three years on the board, but I'm, I'm worried about running my day-to-day business 365 days a year. So I contributed the time I could, the input I could, but ultimately it's always going to be limited. Yeah, I think that, and that's an excellent question, right? And I think that anytime you're in this type of role, it's always, um, ideally it's evolving, right? And kind of to your point with, with some of the things that were kind of stacked when I first started, um, especially when there was the pressure from the, the big four and the pullout and some of that thing. Um, there was a pretty big, large gap from when my predecessor left and when I started. And in that interim, basically board members kind of came in to manage different aspects of certain things. And as I came in, um, it, it was, it's been a little bit of a, you know, where does this now fit in and how does this management actually happen? When the big four pulled out, there was a very natural and understandable tendency circle the wagons and get involved. And as you said, uh, the board are all business uh, owners, right? And so you're all very much used to being able to come in, make decisions and, and run your business how you see fit. And oftentimes that does uh, you know, spill in. And so there is some push and pull when it comes to that. Um, in a lot of ways, the, you know, the past six months or so has been um, kind of growing in that regard in terms of what is sort of my purview and, and what is, is, is the board's purview. I think that we're going to ultimately get to a better place with that. Uh, because, I mean, honestly, for myself as the chief executive, you know, there's a certain amount of control and decision making that I have and should have an authority and I'm answerable to the board as far as that's concerned. The real big challenge that we've had right now is, is that it's been reactionary for, for too long. And what we're really going to do now is this strategic planning session that we're going to go through with the professional facilitator to design exactly what this vision looks like. That gives me now a playbook, right? And so now I'm going to be able to go and execute that and have that authority to go and execute that according to what those are, what the approved budget is, et cetera, so on and so forth. And so there is obviously, like I said, still some messages. And again, 
I still also think it's indicative of the fact that for so long, the, the association really has just been about managing a trade show by and large and still trying to figure out what an actual association and building that it, it means. And that's one of the reasons why they came and found me when they did is that they wanted to find somebody with a, you know association experience uh, in order to help build that. And so that's kind of why we're going through some of the, the growing pains that we are. But I think ultimately we will get to the right equilibrium to where it's understood where my authority begins and ends and where I answer to the board as far as where their authority, um, over, you know, kind of overcomes in mine. So back when I was on the board, which uh, it's got to be 12 years ago, roughly, probably in that area, um, you know, basically the board made a decision and then they just wanted people to execute it. And I, I just don't think long term. Or, or, or I think it really hinders the ability of someone to do their job, especially when they're the ones who are charged with really that's their full-time job, right? Um, there were some flaws that I think were there 12 years ago that are still there the way how, how the boards run. You know, I don't know what your term is. Was your term three or five years, Scott? Uh, I actually, no, I actually don't have a term. Oh, you don't have a term? No. Okay, good, 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 because I think, the, the prior two had contracts that, that were, that had a, a term limit. So, you know, I say you hire a guy, let him do his stick. And if he sucks at it, you get rid of him, but you got to <laughs> let a guy, you know, you got to let a guy run. I mean, that's what yeah. you, you, you bring him in to do, let him run his stuff, you know? And, and it's, 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 you know, I don't, I, I haven't been on the board in over a decade. I don't know how the current thing was, but that was one of the things when we were there, because look, the reality of the situation is, some things just need to be a dictatorship on some level because this popular vote or by democracy sometimes is nothing but a hamstring that holds up stuff from happening. One of the reasons why we can execute and do some crazy things like pulling off the digital, you know, the, the great smoke digital experience, whatever is, is I don't answer to anybody. So I get to make my decisions and my team is ultimately supportive and helps follow through with what we need. But if I sat here and I had to, if I brought in five or six guys in a room and we all wanted to vote on democratically on every decision, it would have taken us three years to put on that production. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, I learned a very great lesson when I was going through um, uh, some management school stuff back in the day. And there was a, a woman who was up who was teaching and, uh, and she does consultant for a lot of like some of the biggest companies in the world. And she said, you know, whenever I get into boards, particularly those that have strong personalities, she said, it's fascinating when you start to see the psychology of it because they, they oftentimes don't necessarily want to upset the others. They want to give credence to that and, and everything else. And she said, you honestly would think it would go the other way sometimes. She goes, but more often than not, what kills boards is consensus. Consensus kills creativity. And she's like, you know, that's, that's where things really sort of grind. You don't come up with best solutions. You end up just as you said, wanting to take the path of least resistance because you want everybody to be agreeable and on board rather than sometimes, you know, you need to, to sit down and you need to have the guy. There's, there's, there's a past board member that I really appreciated um, just because he would always say no sometimes, you know, whenever he needed to, not because he agreed or disagreed, but because again, you know, even though it's not necessarily technical, scientifically sound, but friction makes the diamond. Right. And so oftentimes you need to be able to use that in, in a way and, have that push and pull that kind of comes from that. But at the end of the day, yeah, look, it, it, um, it, it really kind of comes down to uh, what you just said, right? There, there was a reason why I was brought in. Um, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's been positive and we've been kind of growing in that direction. Um, 
it's it's just when you have the infrastructure that's been in place for as long as it's been in place, faced with the adversity that we've been faced with, it it, it gets difficult to kind of stay on that track. I mean, change is scary enough as it is, but when then you're faced with all of these different things that end up happening when your very industry and, and, and livelihood is threatened, it's very easy to kind of stay. Well, no, we're going to stay here with what we know and what we're comfortable with, and and that's 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 not unique to this association or this industry that's that's the other thing i want to bring up this structure that's been in place for way too long because you know i don't know if there's any talks about it but i think one of the problems right um is that the way the board is set up and the executive board who pretty much kind of is the majority vote i i mean the executive board is almost 50 percent of the whole board um and the way it lends itself is the same eight people can people basically are kind of controlling the decision-making for decades. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that's a healthy way to have people who are advising or trying to run something. Because what happens is, is that it doesn't give you a fair representation of where the current industry currently is at. And maybe who are some of the most innovative people and talent people because now you have people who are sitting on the boards i don't know what the span is now from secretary to ex officio it's like 12 15 years you know? yeah they, they, they actually did change it because they got rid of the second vice president but it is from from secretary through it's it's eight years to president and then to ex officio so 10 years yeah so so 10 years so and basically is you're not picking a president or someone who should be president all all, all we're voting for every year as a secretary who then goes through this process who then locks people in. So over the course of 10 years, and if you know, you have the same people who are going to be on it, you know, for that 10 year stretch, multiple people are on it together. You have an industry that could very well change and veer. And I, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that's the smartest way to run a board. Um, I wouldn't run a board for my company that way because it doesn't tend itself to be flexible and, and adjust as times or innovators or new people come into this industry. Um, and I don't know if that's something that people have looked at or talked at, but I think a lot of the structure that was set up 20, 30, 40 years ago for this association needs to be reevaluated and changed. I think because it hasn't been reevaluated and changed, and you can tell me how off the mark I am or whether you agree, it's just my opinion. I, I have you on my show, so our show, so I want to share it with you. But I think part of the reason why the, the PCA found itself where some of the major contributors felt neglected or felt like needed to be pulled out, retailers aren't supportive or coming as much as they should be, is because these changes haven't been made. It's a structure that's existed forever that obviously is not working to the best interest of the organization. Yeah, there's no question. And, and, and that has been heard. And again, it's one of those things to where it's say, how do we do this? And that is specifically the, the conversation around terms, et cetera, for executive committee has been discussed. And it's actually going to be part of what we're going to be looking at and change and, you know, potentially changing here with the uh, strategic planning session that's going to be going on in October. What is the infrastructure here? We've already opened up the elections from the board. So that's great. We want more participation committee wise. What does the board makeup actually mean? What does leadership actually mean um, in terms of that? And that's why, because during the conversation, you know, it comes up like, well, look, we, we get that. We want more participation. But the challenge at the end of the day is, you know, when you're especially now when so much is going on with with all of the, the lobbying and advocacy at the state level and what we're working on. You have somebody that's been doing that for two, three years and then they drop and we have to kind of get somebody up to speed in you know, six months. That becomes difficult on that end, too. 
So there, we really need to find the right balance mechanism to be able to say, look, we, we're transitioning, but at the same time, we still need expertise involved. Hence the reason why we need open participation on these committees and more people involved because that gives us more continuity. It also gives us more membership that is more well-versed in what's going on to be better advocates out, not only just for the organization, but in terms of the industry as well. And so that's kind of why we want to open up that participation. But to your point, that is correct. And that's something that has been heard. It's just how do we actually do this in a way that meets exactly with what we want? And if we don't know, if we haven't done the strategic work to understand what it is that we want, what our mission statement is now for the future and where we're going, it's difficult to sort of put a, a structure in place now that might not actually meet with what we're going to be developing for what the future of the association model is. We want to get that set first, and then then, then the leadership structure will kind of flow from that. So that is all part and, and forefront of the mind right now of what we've been talking about as a board, um, and that's what's going to be discussed. In about six weeks, we should have everybody here for a big one-day strategic planning session. I mean, it's we've told people no phones, no, no emails, nothing. We're here to do the important work of the association because, again, as a board, we need to work on what's important, not what is urgent. And that's been sort of the issue with the past couple of years. To your point, we've all been working on what's urgent because we've had fire after fire after fire. Now we need now is the time we need to really do that important work so that that way we have a framework to respond to the urgent things and get more good work done. So a couple of things I'm, I'm, I'm reading the comments. So you have Jose Blanco, who is actually um, was the uh, I forget what they call it, but the manufacturer seat of the board. Um, mm -hmm back when I was on the board. So that here we go, I was on the board 10, 12 years ago, and then there's still this comment, the manufacturers need to have more of a say, which has been, a, I guess, a constant cry for decades now. So it doesn't seem like the manufacturers feel that they have adequate input into the show or justifiable input because, you know, decades later, this is still an issue. And I think it's become apparent to anybody that the whole existence of the trade show, especially in its current state more than ever, is dependent on these people more than anybody. Yes. If you don't have the retailers, you don't have, if you don't have the manufacturers, you don't have the retailers no matter what. Mm -hmm. So the fact that their needs haven't been addressed after all this time is, is a little disconcerting that you still have these kind of comments. And then Ron Graywolf makes a mention over here about who's eligible to be a PCA retailer or whatever. The reality of it is, is once again, Ron, I'm going back to something that was structured decades ago, and I sat there and I've seen it. I was witnessed it myself. These decisions weren't always made with what the best of the, what was in the best interest of the organization. This was set up in an old boy school situation where the same group of people could kind of protect their own interests. And that's how this current structure is kind of set up. Whether it's being done today or not, I can't tell you. I haven't been on the board in over a decade, like I said. Yeah, to answer but, that question, the bylaws were updated. Yeah, this is what this was yeah. the original design. The original yeah. design was for for the people to keep control and, and and set precedent. And then I sat on the board where I saw decisions being made. I remember arguing and saying, you know, because you know, they most of the people who sat on the board when I sat on there didn't do online or e-commerce retailing, and they were all against it. They all felt it was the evil thing. And meanwhile, there were three of us sitting on the board who all did online retailing. And I remember asking the question in the boardroom to the, the current, you, you weren't there, Scott. It was a, a different, um, 
executive uh, director. Executive director. Thank director. Yeah. Thank you. It was a different. They had different names over the time. I think back then they called it CEO. It or CEO. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different executive director. But I remember asking them, "Can you tell me what percentage of the membership of this organization does out-of-state sales or interstate commerce?" And they couldn't tell me. Well, if you can't tell me that, how can you adequately represent your membership? You know, and, and, and this was what I experienced 10 years ago. I don't think much of it has changed since then. I don't think the membership is, is represent. I don't think the, the, the board at most times is not representative of the slice of what this industry is made of, either on the retailer or the manufacturer side. And I think that's why there's been a lot of disconnect uh, over the years. And I, I you know, and I, look, I, I went to the show this year. I plan on going next year if it doesn't doesn't conflict with a major uh, international trip. I'm, I'm trying to take my family on that got canceled during COVID. Um, I'd like to see it thrive. I think it's good for the industry. I built my business on creating experiences and social settings, and I think that the organization of the, you know, the PCA organization should foster that and build itself on experience and social settings. And part of that has to be with you know, getting rid of some of these old school ways that have existed for many, many years. It doesn't lend itself to probably get the most creative and innovative people to help support a guy like you, Scott, who may be trying to shake and make things happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, look, there's no question. I mean, at the end of the day, to your point, look, 10 years ago, it was a very different industry, right? And so when you look at this now, again, we have to understand that we as a premium cigar industry need to be an advocacy industry. We can't afford not to be. And so what that means is we need one industry with one voice. And as part of that, we can't have different factions, whether it's manufacturers or whether it's, it's uh, you know, online only, whatever the case may be. The reality is, is that we are all in business for the premium cigars. And I, and, and look, that, that I know that might ruffle some feathers and, and, and everything else, but at the end of the day, we are too small to be fragmented. And if we're going to fight our battles in a fragmented way, we're going to lose because I promise you that our opposition is not fragmented. They are enormous and they are very well funded. But if we are able to come together, we also know that we have a game plan that has been working and we continue to work at it. We'll be more successful because we have, we have good networks of people that, that believe in the industry. We have policymakers that believe in the industry. And so at the end of the day, we need to be able to figure our own house out. And once our own house is in order, we're going to start to see success upon success upon success. Just real quick to answer the mobile lounge thing. According to the current bylaws, mobile lounges can join because the fixed location is not in the bylaws. It's just you have to have a physical location with the appropriate state licensing. So if you're a mobile lounge and would like to join the PCA, it's a physical location. You have the proper state licensing. You are able to join the PCA. It's not against the bylaws. I double checked that myself. So you're able to join. It's funny, Jose Blanco makes a comment. The board say, says the board should be seven retailers and seven manufacturers, in my opinion. It's funny because so, I, don't, I don't know if Alex or Paul remembers this, but I said it should be six. I think it should be a, a, a small, mid-sized, large retailer, small, mid-sized, large manufacturer. You have a vote of six that the executive director can make a tie-breaking vote if, if necessary in, in any situation. I, I, I said that before. I think a big board does nothing but cause more problems, more stagnancy more headaches. I think if you have three from each side who who represent all three parts, small, medium, large, I, I think I think that probably would be a very effective way. So just interesting because Jose said seven and seven. Yeah. 
Well, and, and Jose's right, and I, I will tell you this, in full honesty, transparency, the, the current board recognizes the need for more manufacturer representation as well. That's something that's been actively discussed. The uh, uh, pandemic obviously threw a huge wrinkle into some, in, in pause on some of the plans and discussions that were going on. But the current board is, you know, 100% aware of the, the, the manufacturer role, the importance of it, and the need for more manufacturer representation. So I do believe that, you know, look, uh, ultimately, as we have these discussions and make these decisions, I think that you're going to see some very positive changes as far as that's concerned. A second part is I might have a little bit of a difference of an opinion with you in terms of the size of the board, just because I've I've come from different associations where I've had you know larger boards and participations and things like that. Um, when we're dealing with different segments, uh, different industries, whether it's suppliers uh, and manufacturers here, retailers, etc. I do think that it's going to be important for representation, but again, we don't want to get into the same position that we're in now for people that are feeling like there is no means of engagement at leadership level. And the other part is, is that if, for example, for all one manufacturers have their own division within a premium cigar association, manufacturers need to have enough space for them to be able to run their own division within that space. So that probably will necessitate more leadership seats than some people may anticipate. But I think that it can be run appropriately if managed appropriately and kind of what you were talking about earlier in terms of um, terms and elections and things like that, that does help. But that also that also requires, again, active participation from members and volunteering on committee levels as well in order to make those things run. So, I, I you know, I don't know if there is a perfect size for a board, to be honest with you. I, I think that it just needs to be uh, can conducive to what the mission and what our outcomes we're looking at. If we're having smaller outcomes and it only needs two or three people to work on something, absolutely. I kind of think that the the fact that we do need more representation and more means of engagement, I probably think a little bit of a larger board than some people realize might be what's necessary. Is there is there anything, and, and forgive me for not being like, uh, you know, uh, knowledgeable about how the organization runs in this fact, is there any kind of like minimum requirement for the board members as far as either raising funds or bringing people to the, because every other trade, so I've been involved, not as a board member, but I've worked for companies where the, where the president of our company served on different boards. You know, uh, one of my old bosses helped start Autism Speaks. He was one of the original board members. Oh, nice. When they became the organization that they are, they brought in less is it Les Moonves or, or one of those guys from, from Viacom CBS? He originally, he came in and he said, every board member here is responsible for raising a million dollars in a year. So throughout your term, you have to raise $3 million. Let's just say something. I mean, I'm not saying it has to be something like that, but are there minimum requirements for either time spent or, or actual projects or bringing in donations or bringing in people to the trade show for the board members? So we, we, we did start that this year uh, in a little bit. It, it hasn't been codified, and it's something that, quite frankly, I've, I've asked and we're going to talk about in, in terms of, again, board members being at the strategic planning session and participating, saying there's too much important work to be going on right now. To have folks that aren't really going to be able to sign on the dotted line, here's how much time I'm going to give, et cetera, so Absolutely. on and so forth. But we did have those expectations this year. Our, we are board members. We, I pulled lists of people that had joined and had registered yet and just reached out and called people that hadn't joined as well. And so each board member got a list of anywhere from 30 to 50 people that they were required to call as we were leading up to the trade show. 
call, talk to them, tell them you're you know on the board of the Premium Cigar Association, ask about the trade show, ask about how business is going, ask if they're planning on coming, ask what's going on, um, mm-hmm. and find out from them. And so that was that 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 started off you know in about you know four or five months ago, and we know we want to continue to do that and put more responsibility. And a lot of the board members really are they 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 want to do more work, and you know again being able to create the, the the right infrastructure for them to be able to do that right each committee having their their mission statement and their statement of work and therefore it's clear what they need to be working on and what those outcomes are what they're accountable for that all has to be created and that's what we're looking to create here in, in the next month or so is is exactly that right and so that that way it's hard right now to say oh you have to do this and this and this as a board member because there's really no infrastructure other than maybe raising money or you have to bring x number of people to the trade show so I really think that to your point, yeah, I would love to have something very specific codified as a board member. Here's your expectations. Here are your requirements. And if not, why don't you just volunteer for a committee then and put in a little bit less time? Yeah, my 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 business, uh, you know, my day job is advertising. The New York Ad Club. I mean, it's it's ridiculous the amount of time and effort you have to put in to be a board member, which is why they have terms for it, I think, as well. But it, it's it's a it's a driving force. I mean, the board members bring in money. You know, yeah. they bring in people and it's a huge responsibility. But then again, on to Abe's point, like smaller people in the industry, it might be difficult for them to bring in. Whereas, a, you know, a big, larger retailer yeah. might, might be easier for them. But, you know, you set real a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of these guys are trying to figure out how to bring in money into their own shops, more or less right. bring in money to the PCA organization. A, a, a more relevant question I'm curious is, and I don't even know what, what is the qualifications to be a board member? So uh, it really just comes down to the fact that you have to be a member in good standing, a voting member in good standing. So it's open to retailers only. You you know have to have a store that's been in operation uh, for the year uh, and and be a member in good standing. And so if you haven't paid dues, et cetera, things like that, then you're obviously not in good standing. So uh, currently, there really hasn't been one. Uh, again by nature of the way that it's been done in the past they've had sort of that the whole vetting because it was kind of you know a closed vote um and then just sort of stamp of approval at the annual meeting whereas this year member good standing and so that's where the nominating committee comes in it says look do they meet the standards and really everybody who who self-dominated um was put forth unless they just didn't meet the standard of being an actual you know owner of the store or so on and so forth and if they filled out the application and sent it in and they qualified they were on the ballot so the, the qualification basically is they have to have an open door and have paid their dues. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's widely inclusive <laughs> if you it's, want to do it. It's, it's but, extremely inclusive. We don't know, <laughs> you know, so the, but, but to, to the other point though, is I think that the requirements, at least for the, it's a small barrier to be able to be considered. But I think that to, to Paul's point there is, is that, the requirements for what you're going to put in the position to do any number of these things, that's where I think that it kind of filters out those that maybe can't do what they need to do. Right. It, and or it bring. totally weeds out people that don't, that don't have the time that not that they don't want to put the effort in, but it, it weeds out the people that maybe don't have the time, you know, mm-hmm. even in your current situation, I, you'd be very limited on time. If you were on the board right now, it'd be, it would be difficult for you. Absolutely. So here's the other aspect too, is again, bringing in experience from other associations. We've talked about this. They say, look, I, I understand that an owner is kind of where, oh, well, the owner is the member, et cetera. But there's a lot of folks that are out there that are very involved. Abe, you're very busy. You have multiple stores. We have a lot of people with multiple stores. 
you generally will have one or two right-hand men or women that you're working with that understand this, that may have the time and want to participate and who bring a very different perspective of the industry that is quite frankly vital to what we're trying to do here and can offer some great input, especially as we're looking at building out some of these great programs and some of these educational programs that we're doing. There's a lot that's there that quite frankly, someone in just one role is not going to know. So we need those perspectives. And so I think that that's something that needs to be open for consideration as well, is that strong general managers, you're running stores, things like that. And look, I even want sales associates. I have even if they're part time, not as board members, but participating on committees and doing some volunteer stuff to, to help, you know, give us some feedback as well as to do some good work. Because again, it's a perspective that so many of us just don't have. Well, Scott, it definitely seems like you have a lot of work ahead of you, you and the board. And um, obviously, I think I think the majority of the people are rooting for you guys and want to see the right changes happen and, and see the organization continue to survive to its hundredth hundredth year mark, which is yeah. you know, not that far away. So um, very cool stuff. We have a couple of segments before we close out this week's episode of KMA Talk Radio. Uh, obviously, we're going to go with a very special edition this week of Tale of the Tape. All right. This week's Tale of the Tape includes a very special edition. I, I think Alex actually thought up this category. I did. Yes. Uh, he did. So before anybody starts, you know, saying that I infiltrated this thing, it was Alex's idea. Well, you without a doubt inspired it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Um, this week's edition of Tale of Tape was the greatest Disney character of all time. And we've limited, Paul set the strict limitation of it being actual Disney IP and not, you know, acquired IP. Um, so the character. So in what order do we want to go, gentlemen? Well, we should probably start with Coop's pick, right? Since he can't. Uh, since he's not here. here. Sure. So Coop uh, actually gave me quite a detailed um quite a detailed description as to why he picked this character and it's technically not one character but i let it slide because they come as a package his favorites are huey dewey and louie uh he said for a couple of reasons one that's what he called his three sons they always got into trouble but were always always there for their um their uncle donald and they were never shown the proper love or compensation by their honorary uncle, the greedy Mickey Mouse. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right, cool. But that's a solid. That's a solid classic Disney pick. I don't know if your kids watch it, but I, I, my kids watch like the old forties and fifties. Ducktales. Well, Ducktales as well was later, but my kids really like my son Axel. He's three. He loves like the Uncle Donald and the and Huey Dewey and Louie from like the fifties. He loves those cartoons. I think when your kids get a little older, I'm going to infiltrate them and teach them anime. It's a good. Oh, great! That's that's all I, I need. Like <laughs> all, right, all right. Well, who's next? I'll go next. Oh, you want to go? I don't care. I'm going to save you for no, last. Go ahead. I, I figure we'll save Paul for last. I mean, obviously, his pick is the most um, educated. Wait, Alex, am I picking your? Did you repick yours, or is it the same one as this morning? What do you mean? Did I repick mine? It's the same I thought you said you had an update. Okay, that was no. The update no. was about the bathhouse. Pay okay, okay. All right. Go ahead, Abe. He had an important update. It was the bathhouse. Well, uh, in my opinion, the greatest Disney character ever, without a doubt, is the genie from Aladdin. 
the genie from Aladdin is beloved and popular. I think every child in the 90s had something with the genie's face on it. Not to mention he's probably one of the most instantly recognizable. It's impossible to think of another actor other than Robin Williams in that role. And even harder yet, what Aladdin the movie would have been like without him in it. Uh, the genie was more than just comic relief. In my opinion, the genie was the movie. No other actor in history of animation was more crucial to the success of the film than Robin Williams as a genie. He single-handedly created a character who will live on forever. Um, he had some of the funniest and, in my opinion, greatest musical pieces of all time. Um, you know, you never had a friend like me. He's probably more sung in my house, more more of a song, sung a song that's sung in my house and any other song and let's face it i think every person at one time or another whoever came across a lamp rubbed it in the <laughs> hopes that maybe a genie would come out my opinion the greatest character did of all time is undoubtedly the genie do you know the there's a really i'm just gonna story. say it. i'm gonna say yeah. it. i'm gonna say it. i'm gonna say it everybody's thinking it slight resemblance Abe. <laughs> oh yeah could, could slight be resemblance. could I be mean, what inspired it I mean, let's face it. Re regionally, we're from the same area, almost. That's, so, yeah, you know. that's true. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. There, there's a great story about how they came up with the character, though. Before they even did storyboards or anything for the movie, of course, the animator, the animator that uh, drew the genie, he actually took Robin Williams' uh, comedy bits and he animated the genie in rough animation to uh, Robin Williams' comedy bits, and that's how they pitched it. To Robin Williams before the story was finished, before anything, they knew they wanted him, but they didn't think they could get him. So they did it by creating this character. So there is a slight resemblance to Robin Williams too, and the mannerisms are very similar. Absolutely, to his. absolutely. If you watch any of the musical scenes, it's totally you could tell it was fit for him. And I just do have to say, I'm a fan of the the re the remake of a real live one. And you know, while good. while Robin Williams. While Robin Williams will always forever be known as the genie, I have to give props to Will Smith. I did enjoy his rendition and version of the genie. I thought he rocked it. Yep. Um, I thought it was awesome. So, you know, there wasn't a letdown as far as I'm concerned in the remake. <laughs> Great statement there by Alan Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex. <clears throat> All right. My pick is the card shark pool hustling cigar smoking Juvenile delinquent Lampwick. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of me a little bit. A great friend of Pinocchio who met his untimely demise by turning into a donkey and being kidnapped off to Pleasure Island. Um, kind of a pick for those of us that root for the bad guys in the movie. <laughs> I, 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 I love when you go far enough back where they actually would have a character that would smoke and have a cigar. Right, there's, right. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, or whatever, or any of these animated series where smoking was like not so right. like end of the world. Yeah. In Disney, for some reason, it's always the bad guys. You know, and when I when not. I did this, I was it, it and I was thinking about it, and it, it kind of like brought me back to thinking about my father. Um, you know, my father's not a sports guy. I don't remember throwing a baseball or playing catch with a football with my father ever. But my father taught me how to play three games well. Pool, chess, and gin. <laughs> That's my <laughs> gaming legacy with my father. Alex is actually a very good chess player. I have played chess against him. He's a very good chess player. So, Scott, before we get to me, do you have one that you want to throw in the ring here? 
the genie was the first thing that came to my mind just because it was Robin Williams. And like, it was just, it was it, so great. Like I, I, that was the first thing that came to my mind when you guys mentioned this, the, uh, the other one, the other, only other one I could think of was, uh, because my kids have watched it so much was Maui from Moana. I like oh, uh, the rocks. Character. Yeah. 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 That's a new, that's a newbie. Yep. That's a good one. All right. So Paul, Time for the moment we've all been waiting for. I swear to God, I'll be so disappointed if you say Mickey Mouse. Well, so here's my thought process over the last uh, 28 hours or so. <laughs> um, I, I I said to myself, how do you not pick Mickey Mouse, the icon of the company? They like saying it all started with a mouse. By the way, there's Scott's pick. That's Maui from Moana. Um, and realistically, even though he's the icon of the company, it didn't start with the mouse, right? It actually started with Oswald the rabbit, which was stolen from Disney because his, his production company had rights to it and took it away and blah, 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 blah. And uh, while I love Mickey Mouse, necessarily what he stands for, he doesn't really have like a, I don't know, like an, an inner thing that drives him in my opinion. And I'm going to pick one that may be unpopular, but my pick is Jiminy Cricket. And oh. Such it's the cartoon personification of you almost. Let the let your conscience be your guide. Anytime you're learning something, anytime you're being introduced to something, at least years ago, Jimmy Cricket was your guy. He was your MC. He was the host. He had all the knowledge to bring in a story. He'd he'd sit there and he'd preface all of the stories before you got into the story, not necessarily being a part of the story. Yes, he's he's originally from Pinocchio. But I think uh, his legacy stretches a lot further than that as being like the informational guide to all things Disney. So, I mean, the company uses him today to, to kind of teach their their cast members, you know, ways to to act like a Disney cast member. And, and he's uh, I don't know, to me, he's he's a, an icon that can't be replaced in the company. Well, I think he's the ultimate Disney MC because no one can listen to Mickey Mouse that long. <laughs> and that voice. I mean, that's the reality. Who wants? Who can hear? Ah, hello. We actually have a customer who sounds just like him. Really? No, no. We literally do. We have a customer who sounds just like, like him. Just want to point out that it's in whatever parallel universe. Um, keep in mind that my character Lampwick did not care much for Jiminy Cricket in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Was not a, he was not a fan of Jimmy Cricket <laughs> in the movie. Not, said, you guys are in sync, man. Yeah, the good, the good and evil. <laughs> All right. So there you have it, KMA fans. Post in the comments who do you whose pick do you agree with most? You can include Scott Pierce's pick. Let's see uh who who out of the five picks that we have, who's the most actually I'm gonna put up a poll. See see who's the most popular. <laughs> yeah, we should do that. We're gonna we put up a poll. That. All right, now traditionally ending in normal KMA fashion every Saturday morning, it's time to see who belongs in a Cigar Insane Asylum. Welcome to the Cigar Asylum. Did you know I'm utterly insane? We all go a little mad sometimes. Where logic and reason cease to exist. Okay, a Florida man was arrested Thursday after okay. biting off. Are we good to go? Yeah, I'm good. I have to get your image. Okay, a Florida man was arrested Thursday after biting off 
part of his friend's ear during an early morning brawl at no other place other than Key West, authorities have, uh, said. Yes, this guy got Mike Tyson. Uh, James Len Williams, 45, of guess where? Port St. Lucie. Not too oh, far not away. far away. No. Uh, Len Williams was hit with multiple battery charges following a 2.30 a.m. incident at the Ocean Edge Resort Marina on Stock Island, according to Monroe County Sheriff's Office. Williams was on vacation at the hotel with three friends, a man and two women, when they got into a fight returning to the hotel. The fight started when one of the women, shockingly in Key West, passed out, and Williams decided to place her in a maintenance wheelbarrow. <laughs> True story. <laughs> As Williams was trans, you listen, it wasn't bad. He had to transport her back to the room. Why carrier? He put her in a wheelbarrow. It was there. It's Key West, after all. I mean, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. It's not yeah. After he put her in a wheelbarrow, but then all of a sudden, Williams, while transporting her to the hotel room, started pouring beer on this woman and insulting her. Uh, that drew ire from the other man in the group who told Williams that he was being disrespectful. Williams then became combative toward his 28 year old friend. The trio, including the woman who was passed out after she awakened, attempted to calm Williams down, but the suspect then pushed both the women to the ground, according to the deputies. Williams then pushed the male victim to the ground and began choking him, sheriff's office said. The male victim then stated that Williams bit a part of his ear off while the others were trying to separate him. Deputy Nichols Galbo responded to the scene and found the bite victim was being treated by paramedics. Part of his ears was missing and still bleeding. The sheriff's office said, though, none of the victim's injuries were life-threatening. Yeah, Mr. Williams, you cannot go Mike Tyson, pe Mike Tysoning people anymore. You are this week's inductee until the cigar insane asylum. Looks like he got a little fight back, though, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm kind of okay with this. I mean, I feel like as a guy who's like five foot six, if you're on, you know, the losing side of a, of a fight, when all else fails, you, you take a bite out of something. Maybe it'll oh, get, dude. you know, swing things your way, dude. There's no biting of body parts. Nah, man. I don't, I, no. I'm okay. I'm okay with this one. And so representative of your Disney character, right in line. Right. But, but he uh, was the aggressor. He was the aggressor who bit this, the, the, the ear. Yeah, yes. but, he looked, but he looked like he, he was, I mean, throw that picture up again, Paul. I mean, he didn't look like he was faring too well in, in the fight. Well, it was three against one. It was uh, three against one. Well, sounds like times one. call for desperate measures. <laughs> Fair enough. Scott, thank you for joining us uh, this weekend and taking time out of your busy schedule. We deeply appreciate it. We threw some hard questions at you, and uh, you answered them all. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in the endeavors coming up in the following years. And uh, hopefully uh, you guys will find much success, and we might have you back on just to see how things are going. Absolutely. No, thank you very much. I'll, uh, yeah, I mean, as members, you'll be hearing about you know anything that comes out from, from what we're kind of working on um, and, and what we're looking to do. Um, and yeah, happy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Abe, Alex, Paul, it's a lot, always a lot of fun. Love what you guys do. And so happy to come on anytime. And yeah, feel free to give me a call anytime if there's anything that comes up and you have any questions, you know where to find me. Sounds good. And I've actually like literally smoked this thing to the nub. <laughs> Smoking's Connoisseur Club. If you really want to be part of a very unique program, check it out, smoking.com. It's literally five exclusive cigars made for a very small group of people for you to review and taste without any knowledge and finding out who made it. 
30 days later, you are there are some very great gems made for this club, and it's the only way you'll get to try them or ever smoke them. So check it out. Next week, KMA's 10th anniversary episode, we are broadcasting live from the JC. This is your cue to get ready for the outro, Paul. Just I'm ready. Up. Okay. So broadcasting live from the JC Newman factory in Tampa. Watch our show. We're going to have a lot of cool tidbits. Talk it over with Eric Newman. See what's going on. We'll be broadcasting live. If you're in the area and want to watch the show live, please check out the link on our KMA page. There's an event break link to JC Newman who are selling tickets for this historic event. Until next week, my friends, keep it lit. <laughs>